Welcome to Jodowowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime, painter, and so much more, Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're going to look at perhaps Jodorowsky's most beloved work, the mind-bending The Holy Mountain from 1973. Joining me on this trip of the mountain are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, the excrement turned to gold. It's Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? <laughs> I'm pretty good. I'm glad that you felt I've turned to gold. I, I would say lead is maybe the best I've been able to do so far, which is still, you know, better than excrement, but I, I don't know if I've reached gold yet. I like to think of myself as an architect-like character in your life, and I'm the one kind of molding you into gold. How do you feel mm, about that? Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> that's Is that interesting. how you see things? I mean, I, I, I think of you more as my internal monster that I must cast to the sea, but whatever, however you want to feel about it. Uh, Liam, I have to say, uh, just from the very top, tippity top of this episode, I'm feeling very anxious about uh, talking about the Holy Mountain to such a great extent. It's mm -hmm. just so much to cover, mm -hmm. uh, and I know people are very passionate about this movie. Uh, do you share this? Are you concerned about how people are going to react to your thoughts? What if you were to say that you hated the Holy Mountain? People mm. might be very upset. Mm. Well, uh, unlike you, I've actually conquered my ego, and so I'm no longer oh. attached to the image that people project onto me, and I've found my true self. So I no longer <laughs> worry about how people will. No, of course I'm a nervous, though I, I would say I'm not I'm less nervous specifically about how people will respond to what we have to say because whatever we say, people will have a response, positive or negative, whatever. It's less that. It's more of an internal struggle. I want to make sure that I'm not always convinced that me speaking represents my ideas as well as I could or you know you know sure. what I'm saying or or representing I think there's something very special and magical about this movie even as you know maybe there are some parts that I want to change or some things I don't love about it there's the thing itself is so important in my mind that I want to give that respect uh but I have to remind myself much the way I would encourage you to that like some feeling of wanting to have the right thing to say is a little bit of form of control. Part of the point here is a real experience is difficult to describe. And if this really is the experience that Yodorowsky wanted it to be, then putting words to it is part of the problem. That there are words we can reach for, but those words are not in and of themselves the truth. They're just one way for us to point in a direction. I did think it was strange when, before we started recording, you told me that you wish that the part with the fighting dogs at the end went on for another 45 minutes. I that needed a lot more. I needed a lot more of that. <laughs> also, I, I did break edge watching the movie because I just was like, <laughs> I'm not getting it. I need some, some uh, well, weirdly, I did meth, which I don't think helped. <laughs> uh, it takes more than the two of us, thankfully, Liam, to conquer this mountain. With <laughs> us, as always, on Jodowowski is the great writer-director, Julia Marchesi. Julia Tell us where we've gone wrong with the Holy Mountain. Uh, uh, hi. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a little early for, to, to, to see where we've gone wrong. 
Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But I'm, you know, like you too, I, you know, this movie, I I love Jodorowsky and this is my favorite Jodorowsky movie. So of course I want to do it justice. And uh, as Liam was saying so nicely, like you really can't. And I think that I'm trying to let let that go and just talk about my feelings on it and which parts I like and which parts I don't and what I think they mean. And of course I have no idea what Jodorowsky thinks they mean because he's a mystery wrapped in enigma, but we go forward and try to say how this movie affected us. And that's what this podcast is. That is Joe Dawowski. Yes, it is. He's such an interesting artist. And I know I know we've talked a lot about him as an individual, but doing a lot of research for this particular episode, the thing that struck me is his willingness to talk about his work in a way that a lot of artists who make kind of surrealistic work are not. So we have these commentaries where he's spelling out things that I mean, I, I, it's great. It's great for me who's trying to gain a greater understanding. But then he's also, you know, telling maybe a few tall tales in the in the interim and maybe going on tangents. He's such an interesting guy to listen to. But uh, sometimes the more I listen to him, the more I realize that I know so little about what I'm going mm-hmm. into when it comes to the movie as a whole. One of the things I found really revealing as we were going through some of the supplementary materials was a moment where he's just talking about the movie generally, and he says, I've realized the more time I watch the film that I put a lot of tarot in the film. Yes. There's a lot of tarot uh-huh. in the film. And I thought, that's one of the few things that anyone understands about the movie. Like, if you read anyone <laughs> talking about the movie, they all go, it's deeply influenced by the tarot. So for him at 90 to be going, I think I put a lot of tarot in. What do you guys think? You think there's a lot of tarot in the movie? Like, he's surprised. Says to me that, like, the creative process is not like he wrote out a big outline of themes I'm putting in the movie. Theme one, the tarot. Theme two, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think we, we sometimes talk about creativity as if it's like a, a linear process and not like he's out there on the mountain going, I don't know, try this. Let's try this and see if this works. You know, because that's that's part of the creative process. And so, like, you know, that just it, it was honestly encouraging to me to realize, like, oh, some of this he figured it out and some of it he's still figuring out he's looking back on it and saying you know another revealing moment is in in one moment in the film he it, we're being shown his tarot right he's redrawn the tarot right right mm-hmm. and then now as an as an older man he's like i deeply regret trying to make my own tarot and i should have just used the regular tarot because yeah. my tarot is not good <laughs> and I, I thought wow that's really revealing that's really interesting i i've always wondered what these weird images are because they are not from the tarot is the tarot public domain? <laughs> you think, I mean, question? it must be. I, th- I think it's from the 14th century, the one that he decided okay, was the, the proper one. So <laughs> I imagine so, but I mean, who knows? I mean, there's like he says, there are so many decks that he used to collect. There's a part where he's talking about the tarot, and I have to say, ladies and gentlemen listening right now, I do not have an understanding of tarot as a art form if that's what you would refer to it as he says that it's basically the basis for all card games which i tried to understand by doing some reading i'm like i don't understand how this goes to poker or blackjack or anything like that but i mean i trust him i do know that when um when people uh talk to him about doing a tarot reading that he can basically pull it up from memory he's obviously studied it his entire life and just an amazing you know skill on on top of all the other things that we know about Jodorowsky. Julie, I think we've actually referred to this previously that you've been able to see The Holy Mountain on the big screen. But what I really want to ask you is, do you remember your response the first time you saw the film after it was over? One of the things about this movie, maybe more than almost any other movie, is that it kind of leaves you reeling. It kind of leaves you questioning yeah. things. Yeah. What, what, what was your response to seeing this movie for the first time? 
so I saw it at the New Beverly for the first time. So I actually saw, got to see it on the big screen for the first time. It was a double right. feature of El Topo and Holy Mountain. Unbelievable. And I would, you know, the movie's so so thick with things that you're just trying to like keep up with what, everything that's happening. And 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 so it got to the ending, and I I think this is this is one of my top five endings of all time ever. Yeah. And my hands went to my head and I went, wow. And then I just sat there and I had like the biggest smile on my face. I was so, I was like, I'd never, who does, I've never, who ends a movie like that? I've never seen a movie that ends like that. What the fuck is, that was brilliant. And so like the movie was good and I was on board, but then the ending, I was like, yes, now you are in my top five, 100%. So it really made me, that was the, it was the ending of this movie that I was like, Joe Dorowski, you've won my heart. I am yours. You can just imagine the the you know the entrance way to the theater. People all a, a, a kind of a, 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 a thunder, just just talking about it. You know, trying to to um, go through their feelings on the thing that they just saw. Especially thinking about it when it first showed back in the nineteen seventies. But even now, I mean, there's a lot of people in my life that have never heard of the Holy Mountain, and I can just imagine their response to it. And not all of those responses would be necessarily positive especially because there's a lot of controversial things that are in this movie and and when i say controversial mm -hmm. uh, whatever you may be thinking listeners if you have not seen the holy mountain it probably goes into places you are not expecting uh liam do you remember your first time uh seeing the holy mountain i know that the ending we're going to get to talking about the ending a little bit later but do you remember your response to the movie as a whole after the first time that you saw it yeah i i'm trying to think how to describe it it was it was a feeling like I need to do more research, right? <laughs> uh, which maybe sounds like a bummer to people. For me, that's like one of my best responses to something. Like that's something that obviously matters to me. Like if my immediate response is to try to get on the internet and figure out what the fuck is happening, that actually <laughs> means like, okay, I'm really into this. This thing means, and um, <clears throat> so I, I think it was a home viewing. I'm, I'm trying to remember, it's a little bit murky. I know I saw the movie, before the documentary was coming out about Dune. Uh, right. And I knew that I knew the name because I had a Yodorowsky shirt a good couple years before that documentary came out. Um, mm -hmm. But I, 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 I don't remember if I had bought it on DVD because I have that DVD box set of Yodorowsky films. Sure. I don't know if I bought that and that was the first time I saw it. Or if I borrowed it from someone who owned a copy, but I it was a home viewing. It was me and like one other person, and it ended, and I just felt like my brain had exploded. And like <laughs> to be fair, I was in from the very first seat. Now let me let me explain something. <laughs> uh, my mom knew about this movie before I did, and when I told her that I got into it, she said, "Ooh, I never liked the poop part." Like that was like <laughs> that was like her response to it because my mom was a hippie, you know. Like sure. I, I was her like settling down from hippiedom. Oh no, I guess I'll have a kid now. Sort of experience, you know. Like prior to my coming into the world, she was like living wild and enjoying the seventies, and so. Um, <laughs> Like, of course she knew about this thing. Now, she didn't know any of his other movies. She didn't know much about him otherwise. But she had been exposed to this movie because of being a hippie and just knowing other hippies. And so, like, that was, like, my connection 
to the fi- the film like when it started some of that imagery the way that it borrows immediately you know the the writing looks kind of like a sanskrit writing the imagery mm. looks like a weird mixture of eastern mysticism whatever the images from the tarot my mom owned four tarot decks i got one of her tarot mm. decks in my house right now that i you know keep in a place because i neither want to use it nor want to hurt it or disrespect it in any way because i wow it, 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 like it's an ouija board or something goodness yeah right. well trust me i spent a long time doing ouija board with my mom as well uh but <laughs> after after years of doing that i'm like that's just a shitty piece of plastic you gotta respect that tarot card deck though that shit's for real um and and to be and to be fair the reason i don't use it is because i don't know that it is for real i i don't know that it isn't more along the lines of what Yodorowsky, I think, refers to it as as a, a way to work through our own complex psychological matrices and understand the present. Uh, my mom definitely more used the tarot as a way to explore what might happen in the future. And, you know, I don't know how she feels about it now, but it was something she took very seriously at a certain point. So when I'm watching the movie, I'm, I wouldn't say that gave me understanding, but it rang a familiarity. I knew that there was something mystical happening and I was immediately on board. I was already sold and I was already thinking like there are knots upon knots here for me to, uh, disentangle to understand Mm. and i wouldn't say that i have gnostic tendencies you know for those people who don't know the term gnosticism was an idea that like all real truth is secret and so like anything that's obvious is not true and only things that are secret and hidden are true i think that always leads to a form of like uh superiority complex supremacy sort of vibe so i'm not so into that but i do think that truth is often more nuanced and complicated than we realize and so that aspect of the film i really found appealing but then much like julia what sold me was not all this confusing stuff that i felt like i had to decode and detangle it was that ending because i felt like the ending said to me you've been trying to figure this out the whole time and it was a waste of time go out (laughs) and 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 take this experience and be changed and live your life and don't feel like you're going to come up with a secret code because that's not the point and like that I blew my mind. I like literally cried. And now every time I watch the movie, I find it a magical experience. I don't cry every time, but I do get emotional (laughs) every time because I just think it's a, and maybe he doesn't feel this way about it. Maybe there were other things he wanted to do. And we'll talk about that a little later, but whatever it was he had planned, I think this ending is the ending that was meant to be. It is the perfect ending for this piece of art. And I think it, it does something that I think every piece of art that is, well, whatever, a lot of piece of arts want to do, which is it puts something on you, the viewer, and asks you to respond. And you have to respond. It is an ending that demands you to respond in some way. Granted, for a lot of people, that was anger and frustration. (laughs) But uh, that's at least a response. Because I think of how many other films I've watched in which you could have done anything else for two hours that has no effect on you. Sometimes that's what makes movies great. I'm not going to lie. I don't mind that. But... I think some movies want to have this sort of visceral response that this movie has. Well then, Liam, thank you. Sorry. For, so that was sorry. your experience watching the Holy Mountain? Sorry, sorry. 
don't apologize. This is what this podcast is for, it's right? This absolutely. is for us to like our, our, our own personal opinions about it. So let's hear about yours. When was yours? I, I wish I had the same transformative experience that the both of you seem to have the first time you watched it. It's not that I was uh, dismissive of it. I saw it first on DVD, certainly. And it wouldn't have been until I moved to Ontario, probably in the, well, probably the mid to later part of the 2000s. And seeing it was, it was one of those movies that I had heard of at length and everyone seemed to have been talking about it and i saw the imagery everywhere so walking into it i had certain expectations of what it was and i think in my mind i was expecting i was expecting something very different i was expecting something maybe a little more straightforward and uh maybe even something a little more lynchian as opposed to jodorowskian <laughs> in terms of the content sure. and there is a distinct line between those kind of 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 uh, surreal tendencies. So, and I also felt like I didn't get it. Like I just didn't grasp it properly. So this is, I sort of had a similar response in some ways to you, Liam, in the sense that I felt those knots, right? I saw the knots in there, but I realized that the time it was going to take to unravel them was going to be years and years. And that's exactly what it was. But what that also meant is as I was trying to unravel them over those years, I gained a better appreciation, a better love for it, and a better emotional connection to it. So this was a film that I gained appreciation for over time as opposed to immediately connecting with it to the point where even the, the revisits I've done over the last couple of days, I have a better deeper love for it than I mm -hmm. even had before. And even then I thought it was of the Jodorowsky films I've seen the, the very best. And one of the most, again, transformative is a word that I don't want to lean on too heavily, but it is the, the word I feel about. I mean, it's a, it's a word that's actually used in the movie proper. This is a movie that's meant to transform the audience as they watch it. And I have felt transformed. It just took me probably a little longer. A lot of things take a little longer with me to, to, to hit home. <laughs> uh, but just honestly, the more I know about it, more I know about the mythos around the making of it and the fallout of it, it just builds it in my mind a little bit more. It makes it kind of more than a movie. And that is the problem I have as someone doing a podcast about it is that for a lot of people, this isn't just a movie. And so I want to make sure that we do it justice. And I really feel like we will. So let's talk about it. Uh, let's dive into, before we hit our first break, let's talk about what led to The Holy Mountain. Now, on the last episode, we talked about El Topo. And we talked about upon its release, it became a midnight movie, the first midnight movie sensation. And it was championed by John Lennon. And uh, John Lennon's, uh, the, his manager, uh, the president of Apple Corps, uh, Alan Klein, he was distributing El Topo in the United States. John Lennon basically pushed Alan Klein to help uh, finance whatever Jodorowsky wanted to do next. Obviously, John Lennon had a lot of respect for El Topo, knew that this man was a genius, and uh, Klein agreed to give Jodorowsky a million dollars to go towards creating his next film. Now, there is some <laughs> dispute about what the final budget of The Holy Mountain ended up being. In the grand scheme of movies, even in 1973, it was a low-budget movie. It was also the highest-budgeted movie ever to be made in Mexico at the time. Uh, and there's also discussions, like you probably have both heard at this point, where someone ran off with $300,000. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion around what the budget actually was. But needless to say, a low budget in the grand scheme, but a high budget certainly for Jodorowsky at the time. Uh, and it took a lot of creativity to bring the visuals to life. Um, I did a little research on the influences behind The Holy Mountain. The main one that you hear again and again is Rene Dumas' uh, novel, Mount Analog. What's unique about that novel, outside of the fact that it kind of creates the structure for The Holy Mountain, is that that novel didn't have an ending. Like, it apparently ends mid-sentence. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's even Isn't better, that really. Like, that's like the, yeah. like the novel, like the book version of this, really, then. 
Right, in terms of like walking away with your own transformative experience, well, come up with your own ending then, right? Even if it was unintentional. And the unintentional ending is something we'll talk about a little later here as well. So Mount Analog, it's not a book I've read myself. I have read up on it, but it does create the, you know, it has the character of the thief, uh, who's equated with Jesus Christ. There's an alchemist. There's seven powerful planets. I mean, there's a lot of what we see in terms of the structure of the film without the detail and without the visual splendor of it. A lot of that exists in this uh, Dumal's novel. It's hard, probably hard for us to understand, th those of us who weren't around the early 70s, that because John Lennon was championing him and all of these different musicians and artists like Kenneth Anger were talking about how much uh, they respected Jodorowsky, that he was kind of a figure within you know, the, the kind of the artistic movement of the 1970s. So Dennis Hopper, when he was making his film, the last film, he actually had Jodorowsky edit the entire movie because he wanted to get kind of a different perspective on it. He didn't end up using the edit, but apparently it informed the final version of it. So like Dennis Hopper and, uh, and, and we talked about some of the musicians actually last time in the wake of El Topo that were uh, very excited about what Jodorowsky was going to do next. And one of those musicians tied to the Beatles, tied to John Lennon, was George Harrison. Yeah. And I love this story. Yeah, I know I love George Harrison. He's probably my favorite Beatle. But Julia, this must be, is this part of the thing that drew you towards the Holy Mountain? You're a big Beatles fan. You have a Beatles tattoo. Is this, is this something that draws you in a little or was it something that you found out after the fact? Yeah, I didn't know about them, this at all, honestly. Mm -hmm. And like, I read every Beatles book in high school, you know, and I had no idea about their connection and certainly didn't know about George Harrison's connection, which... You know, and I and I know now Jodorowsky kicks himself for for refusing him. Um, but you know, the, the thought of this alternate universe where George Harrison did star in this movie—that's like the world I want to live in. Can you no imagine? I, I've been thinking about almost nothing but that over the last couple of days. Just the idea of George Harrison starring in the Holy Mountain. And it, the fact is, when you watch the film, the actor that they have playing the thief, which is the role that George Harrison was going to play. I mean, he looks a lot like George Harrison because he's supposed to look about a little bit like Jesus. And in the 70s, George Harrison looked a bit like Jesus. Who um, didn't in the 70s, though? Yeah. Let's be fair. I mean, that's fair enough. Um, so George Harrison, uh, and I also it's kind of funny to even say looked like Jesus. But I mean, in terms of the, the, uh, the iconography around Jesus, certainly at that time. So George Harrison was all excited about the script uh, for The Holy Mountain and expressed a lot of interest in playing the lead. And it was going to happen, except he had reservations about the sequence in the film where the thief's anus is washed on screen. And uh, and he just, he expressed, he's like, I'll do it, but I don't want my anus <laughs> washed on screen. You know, not not an uncommon feeling, I'm sure, uh, even though you wouldn't normally have to, to express yourself like that. Jodorowsky, he felt like the movie itself and the character is supposed to be someone who can reject all ego, and part of rejecting all ego is re rejecting vanity uh, in all forms, and he rejected uh, his concerns and said, well, if you don't want to do that, then you can't be in the film, as you suggested, Julia. Jodorowsky has since regretted that decision a little bit in that he thought that a lot more people would have seen his film if George Harrison was starring in it, probably uh, yeah. correctly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the really hilarious thing is that if you watch The Holy Mountain, this anus washing scene, it lasts like three seconds on the screen. I mean, it's barely there at all. It's and hard I'm sure to... it's been important to Jodorowsky, but to the rest of the audience, you're like, okay. And then he just goes right past. Like, it doesn't really need to be there. I will but, say you know, I focused on that scene a little bit because that girl's sharp fingers gave me anxiety. <laughs> 
So like when I, I, you know, I've seen that scene many times before I heard the George Harrison story and I thought, does the script describe her weird metal fingers? Because if they did, I would also be like, I'm not sure about the butt scene. But for me, it would not be people seeing my booty hole. It would be, those are scary. She's got scary, sharp things on her hands. It's, it's, it, it, the scene gives she's me She's watching him gently, though. It's all very gently. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's pretty gentle. I would say she's, she's hurting him on purpose. I'm just saying a mistake could be made. <laughs> that, that would be quite a mistake. She trips and falls and stabs his anus. Anyway, please, please Julia. <laughs> well, I just the Beatles, you know, the, the Beatles, of course, such cultural icons, and like everything they do have these giant ripple effects. So you right. know, it wouldn't mm-hmm. just be Jodorowsky's career being magnified. It would be how how where those ripples would go, and how you know, cinema would be different, and music would be different. Like it would change so much. Uh, so. Joe we'll go back to that alternate universe. We'll see that movie. And there we are. <laughs> it's also interesting to note that that character of the thief, it's not like that's the only nudity he would have to have done in the film. I mean, this is a person who would be exposed sure. in a lot of different that's ways. That's pretty impressive. George was okay with the rest of the movie, to yeah. be honest. I, Absolutely. I, I also think, I also thought that my first thought was, you're worried about your butt? Like that dude is nude most of the film. I, I kind of like that he was just like, everything's cool, but no butthole. Like that, <laughs> if you think about it, like, for a person of that level of fame, that's extremely open-minded, actually. We can we can say, like, oh, why is he being so uptight about his booty? But in reality, I think there's a, a very short list of people of that level of fame that'd be like, yeah, let's do this thing. That sounds great. Yeah, completely. <laughs> he poops in a jar. He poops in a jar. <laughs> so, like, that's, you know, you're, you're asking a lot of your actor there. We're just going to focus on this one scene this whole time for you, aren't we? <laughs> this whole <laughs> mystical movie. Only in relation to George Harrison. Only in relation to George Harrison. We okay. can move on. Okay. <laughs> it is an interesting aspect of the making of it. And one of the other almost happened uh, things is, well, John Lennon was a massive fan of El Topo and, um, and, and really was interested in the Holy Mountain. And he was supposed to appear as well. I'm not sure what character he would have ha- appeared in the film as. Uh, the story is that he didn't want to be away from Yoko Ono during the three months, and it probably would have been a lot more than that, uh, filming in Mexico, and that's why he didn't end up appearing. But in terms of kind of- He would have been the of... multimillionaire with the art collection. That would have been oh, my guess. That, I mean, maybe so, right? Especially because those, oh, well, we'll get into it, but those, those uh, quote unquote, planets all represented people who had similar interests in real life. And hey, maybe so, though I, it's a little hard to see him playing that role, but maybe it's just because I'm stuck in what I know of the film as a whole. Um, but Lennon, almost in the film, like you said, Julia, in terms of rippling effects, that also would have been absolutely massive to have John Lennon in this movie. Yeah, plus, uh, and- you know, if it was John Lennon and George Harrison post-Beatles together, <laughs> can you imagine that? Goodness. Now I'm recasting the entire movie with the Beatles and wondering right. who each should. <laughs> Where does Pete ba- who does Pete Bass get to play? Is he, the, is he the master? Let's make him the master. It's, it's hard to imagine the movie would have been finished. I just think for a movie that went for six months and involved fleeing internationally for your lives, it's very possible that they might have never finished filming with folks who were more inclined to say, no, th- mm. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like, I, I wonder if, if really this would have gone the way of Dune and just never been finished if it had people who had more pull on set. I, I also wonder if he was able to get both of them or even one of them if it would have been a little easier to find money for it and maybe that would have been able to that's true that is true 
they maybe provide a few of the creature comforts that they didn't have as the and movie why couldn't John and George just give him money anyway like they're pushing Alan Klein to give him a million bucks they got a million bucks laying around give him three million come on <laughs> well and that's that's actually up for debate there's a bunch of sources that say the million bucks that Alan Klein gave them was just John Lennon's money that he just was yeah. funneling it through Alan Klein who knows it's it's hard to say at this point and it's not something Yodorowsky seems particularly interested in talking about like who was actually signing the checks was it necessarily an important part of the history you mean the guy who who lost three hundred thousand dollars somehow and then just expected it to show up wrapped in, in newspaper and yeah. didn't seem too concerned about the money <laughs> and it did and, and it, it did, did. <laughs> uh so in terms of of uh the actual making of it we'll go into the making of the holy mountain as we start talking about the movie and its plot proper but before principal photography commenced jodorowsky and his wife who's actually in the film they spent a week without sleep under the direction of a Japanese Zen master, a week without sleep. And uh, the central members of the cast spent three months doing various spiritual exercises guided by Oscar Echazo of the Erika Institute. Now, Oscar is someone we'll talk about a little bit later in regards to some of the iconography in this film. Uh, but in terms of like the what the actors had to go through, and this kind of speaks to what you just said, Liam. I mean, it was like they were going through training, like almost like spiritual training. Uh, they were apparently just only sleeping four hours a night at one point. Like they were living with Joe Jodorowsky for like a month before filming started. There was a lot of kind of prep for these actors. And then even when the filming happened, it seemed like there was a lot of um, not improvisation, but in terms of what they were expected to go through. I mean, they had to take drugs. They had to, we'll get into all of that when we talk about the movie proper, but it does seem like, as you were suggesting, maybe it was a lot to ask for a rock star to go through some of what these actors were asked to go through, but some of them weren't even actors, really. So maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it was just reflective of the time, and this is more like uh, people signing up for a course on uh, experiencing something than it is filming a movie to a great extent. I just want to, before we take our first break, before we jump into the movie The Holy Mountain, uh, any thoughts about the movie? Uh, let's start with you, Liam. Anything that you want to talk about before we uh, we jump into our break and start talking about the plot of the movie proper? No, I think we're. I think I'm ready to, to get involved. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, like you said, the, it, it'll be interesting uh, to think about the influence of like these outside forces and whatever but really the movie itself is such a mystery like I, right. I almost feel like you could do a podcast about the making of and then a podcast about the movie because yeah. it's there's so much going on um, and, and I'm sure a lot of those outside forces influence the movie itself but it's hard to pull it apart because as we talked about in the introduction to this series of of, of uh, shows Jodorowsky is not always a reliable narrator so it's hard <laughs> to know what parts are mythology and what parts are real at 100%. What I think we really wanted to get across is the money was there. Jodorowsky was was involved in all sorts of different spiritual exercises leading into the filming of the film. He his, his brain was in a lot of different places, and the actors were asked to kind of come along with whatever he wanted to do. And uh, what we got out of that was the Holy Mountain. Uh, Julia, any thoughts before we take our break and talk about the movie? I am ready to climb this holy mountain with you. I am so excited. Let us talk about this glorious film after the break. After the break, we'll be right back. Nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain.
The Holy Mountain is a film completely outside the entire tradition of motion picture art. It is outside the tradition of modern theater. film outside the tradition of criticism and review. In a corrupt, greed-fueled world, a powerful alchemist leads a messianic character and seven materialistic figures to the Holy Mountain, where they hope to achieve enlightenment. It's 1973's The Holy Mountain, directed and uh, starring Alejandro Jodorowsky, as well as a number of different actors. We'll get into them as we go through the film. Not a lot of familiar faces, let's say, in the film proper, not even, even compared to El Topo, but that is sort of by design. Uh, the, these characters, these seven different materialistic figures that are going to take up sort of the halfway point of the movie and then we move into the final act, uh, they're all sort of reflective of a planet, as we'll talk about, and also uh, apparently were cast because of their similarities in some way to what these planets were supposed to represent. So there's a lot in their characters of what they are in real life, and I think that's very, very interesting. A lot of them, I guess, were picked out of clubs in New York City, just people that Jodorowsky thought were interesting and unique. Some of them even have Jodorowsky's voice because that's how he <laughs> rolls with, uh, with his style of filmmaking. Uh, but before we get into the film, and by the way, the way that we're going to discuss the film, just like El Topo, was in three parts. Uh, I think it does split pretty evenly in regards to that. It'll be everything leading up to the tower, then everything after the characters leave the tower, and then, so it'll be, the tower will be the middle section. So everything leading up to the tower, the tower, and then everything after the tower. Uh, it'll give us a little bit more kind of freedom to explore some of the things in this section, because this may be one of the most densely packed films ever made and there's just too much to talk about otherwise but before we get into it liam you talked a little bit about the tarot in the opening set, uh, segment how your mother was interested in it i was hesitant to say that uh Jodorowsky has said that uh those who use the tarot to predict the future are charlatans sure uh, sure <laughs> but that's, I that's what no... everybody uses it for that's, what that's the, only what... thing, yeah. like, the only thing people think of when you think of tarot is future telling <laughs> Uh, I, I just thought it was very interesting to hear because I, I don't know much about the tarot. I know it's something that Jodorowsky puts a lot of faith in, that he was even, I guess, um, brought in to help design the most legitimate tarot deck possible. Uh, I think they call it the Versailles tarot or Merce something like that. Marseille. Marseille. Marseille, sorry. The Marseille tarot. Um, and, uh, and that he seems to not only collect tarot but has has a real belief in what it can say about yourself about the universe as a whole basically everything leads back to the tarot and uh, wrote a book about it as well and and wrote a book and, and has talked about it in several of his books and there are references to it in all of his movies including el topo um liam any thoughts on the tarot outside of just owning a deck have you had any experience with someone reading your tarot anything like that have, have you and your mother ever had discussions about it no, I mean, I think my mom's understanding of it was uh, not as deep 
obviously is Jodorowsky's, uh, where, where he has it memorized and things like that. Right, I think right. for her, it was more a feeling that while she's always been uncomfortable with a, a specific sort of deity, you know, like sure. that mm-hmm. she's, you know, I was brought up in a very sort of atheist household. She always found the idea that atheism meant pure materialism to be strange because there's a lot of like unexplained stuff in the world. So like big man in the sky who controls everything, that's ridiculous. Uh, other things that we don't understand, not so ridiculous. And so uh, for her, the tarot was one possible way of trying to discern difficult decisions and from what i could tell you know we didn't get into it too deeply but the vibe i always got was uh if she got a tarot reading and she found the reading to be unacceptable that might be because the person was bad at it it might be because there's some feeling that she had that she had not processed so if someone pulls a card out and they say you should stay in your job and you decide well that just doesn't make sense like there's no way well maybe what is being revealed there is that you have unexplored feelings about your job that you did that when someone who you're trusting to tell you advice for the future gives you that advice and you find it unacceptable then maybe what's revealing is okay you're not going to listen to them but you now you know why because the very idea that they gave you was so you know offensive to you that now you understand yourself a little bit more uh and and i've always found that aspect of it kind of interesting i you know on a very sort of basic level i would probably agree with jodorowsky in the sense of like i don't think of the future as set so the idea that anyone could predict it whether that was through magic or spirits or anything my issue with that is not the gushy touchy feeliness of all that it's that i just don't believe in a set future so i'm just kind of like well what are you predicting i don't know you know like what what is there for you to for you to understand but the idea that these art these artistic images reveal something about who we are and that we might be connected to them i don't quite understand the uh let's say the 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 logistics of that which is maybe a bit reductive but i don't know why we why someone like yodorowsky or anyone would think these specific images connect to the ideas that they're trying to explore but often when people talk about the tarot they talk about what they represent these are things i acknowledge as being part of human life i just don't know why uh, and i don't mean when i say i don't know why like because it's stupid. Like, I don't want to give off that vibe per se, but I don't understand why I should trust that these images reveal these things to us. You know what I mean? And and, and I have this underlying cynicism that tells me, I wonder if a good tarot reader is really a good person reader and is like right. relating to this person in a way and using these cards simply as a way to try to understand this person in a way that maybe they don't understand themselves. Because if what is being revealed here is a lack of self-knowledge, I believe deeply in that. I believe deeply that most people don't really understand themselves. And so like right. that I could put some faith in. Um, and, but the other part, it's less the, 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 the hoo hoo nature of it, which I think is difficult for a lot of people. Um, because I think there are things that are difficult to explain. It's more, I don't understand why these particular images, which are, seem so important to Jodorowsky that the, the age of them and the specificity of them, why right. these images would be that connected to these deep ideas of who we are and what we're doing in the world. It's just, I've, I've never understood that on in a very specific way. Yeah, I guess I could see it as useful as a way to kind of unlock your subconscious a little bit and try to and try to self-interrogate to a certain extent. But to me, it always gets caught up in my own cynicism and skepticism about things like astrology, right? Just the idea sure. of something 
bigger than myself controlling the universe, maybe taking away my agency to a certain extent. I don't think that that's how Jodorowsky views it. I think he thinks of it more like a tool that you can use for more kind of self-interrogation. But uh, I, don't, I don't pretend to understand his perspective on it. And I'm hoping that as we go through this project, this podcast, that maybe we'll learn a little bit more about that as well. Julia, do you have much experience with the tarot? Have you ever had your tarot read? What's your thought on, uh, on how the tarot kind of interacts in this film? Uh, yes, I my um, one of my aunties when I would go home for Christmas would read my tarot for the year. That was like a New Year's thing to like right. the next year, and it was something that like, for me, the thought of something bigger than myself guiding my life sounds comforting, but mm -hmm. I can't say that I necessarily believe it. So it's that kind of like Ouija board stuff. Like, oh, it's fun. Let's have some fun. Let's look at this thing. Right. And like, right. of course, I feel like I'm. There is, of course, a, a huge amount of depth to this to this deck that I don't understand. So I'm playing it with a very superficial, su superficial level. But uh, when I met Jodorowsky, I met him getting uh, the copy of his tarot book signed. So that is the book I have that he signed. And I got to like, he signed it in front of me. And <laughs> I got to tell him to his face, he was my hero. And he said, I was his hero. And I died. Oh. And you hear how my voice gets squeaky because I get real excited. Um, so that book like has a very, you know, I'm very prized possession of mine. And so I, of course, bought a tarot deck to kind of go with it. And I've tried several times to do a tarot reading with his book. And it's, I can't. I just like he's so indecipherable and his like the the word that their sentences that are clearly like very simple to him and you're like I don't I don't know what that means what does that mean I don't you know there's such a he has such a mystical way of looking at life that I don't I don't understand so I thought you know I found other sites that are a little bit more simple about what the cards mean but he goes into it in such a way that he has such a depth of knowledge that he's pulling from that he kind of expects you to have that as well and I'm like I don't I don't know what that is so then of course you know it's like a lot of Jodorowsky stuff where I'm like I don't I'm not smart enough to understand it I don't think and it's not that it's just like he's such a uh has such a very deceptive way of talking and has that kind of is he telling the truth? Is he not? Who is he fucking? When is he fucking with you? When is he not kind of vibe to him? I love it. I love it. But I always feel like he's always operating at a level slightly above my my perception and understanding. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a good way of, of putting kind of a lot of the work that he puts out into the world mm -hmm. uh, where it can be somewhat indecipherable, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing, as you mentioned, Liam, that it's sort of the purpose of it. And it's something that you can return to five, 10 years down the line and maybe get something different out of it, maybe get more out of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's again, it's something we will talk about as we go through his career. I did want to talk a little bit about drug use, uh, not not in the specific. Ooh, but our more, own personal drug use? Are we just going to yeah. go into this like back history? Let's, is this I mean, what this podcast is now? <laughs> I mean, you know, honestly, uh, that's why we brought you here today, Julie. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Intervention. No. I should have known. <laughs> it, really, it's about the fact that in the minds of some people, drugs and Jodorowsky, at least this era, kind of go hand in hand. When, you know, we talked before about El Topo, those midnight screenings, he would, if he was doing an introduction, he would get a handful of, of joints as he was heading to the stage. That, that there's a lot of uh, drug iconography that's in these films or, or iconography that's connected with drug use. And we do know that there was drug use involved in the creation of this movie and that Jodorowsky took LSD, uh, beforehand that he gave some of the actors mushrooms when they're making the film, that there's actually scenes uh, with shamans and people who are have medicinal um, uh, backgrounds who, who weren't actors, who are just in the movie actually giving these things to the actors. However, I 
we know that Jodorowsky is not a drug user, does not have a lot of faith in drug use. And in fact, in the film as a whole, that he sort of mocks the idea of people who think of drugs being the the direct way of unlocking kind of a spiritual truth or uh, finding kind of a deeper knowledge of the universe. I did want it to, and I know, Liam, I know you're going to think that I'm being cynical about this, but I wanted to get your take on it first because you are straight edge and I'm not mocking this in any way whatsoever. Sometimes I have a little fun, but I'm not doing that here. That the idea of that some people use this movie as something that go to go along with drugs or that people uh, think of drugs as a way of unlocking parts of their brain. And I guess even Jodorowsky yeah. thought of that to some extent when in the making of this. What are your thoughts on this? What do you think this movie has to say about drug use? Well, what struck me about the scene that's the most critical of of drugs that, you know, he's he specifically says he's making fun of Timothy Leary is um, how um, Timothy Leary could be read as a mystic. But in reality, he was a reductionist. So like for Timothy Leary, drugs were so important that they didn't just allow for a mystic experience, which I think is what. Yodorowsky is sort of talking about drugs for like that for many people throughout time, not just hippies in the 60s, but for a long time in many different cultures, different substances allowed people to change their perception, however we mean that. Um, and that that those substances uh, in a variety of ways um, aided in meditation or changed the way people thought or in the case of some cultures people really believed allowed them to connect to something beyond this reality uh and you know whether that's spiritual things or you know for certain conspiracy people cryptids trying to enter our world and destroy our lives whatever it is you think about that there are there are there are different ideas around that thing but what i found so striking about that particular character was not that he was saying drugs are a tool saying drugs are the whole thing that right. whatever the experience it is the drug is what matters it's a reduction of human experience to brain chemicals and what i think is really interesting about yodorowsky is that I think he finds that idea offensive, even as affirming that he doesn't seem to believe in a literal uh, uh, reality beyond this one. You know, so so, it, you know, the word supernatural is really problematic in our culture because we have changed it to mean all these other things. And, you know, we specifically use it for religious experiences and religious texts, which is crazy because the people who had those experiences, what they were experiencing, they thought of as very natural. It wasn't beyond nature. That was nature. They were experiencing nature. That is, in fact, what is natural. And so uh, I think for Yodorowsky, um, he he ha doesn't have a faith in a world beyond this one, at least the way he's expressed it. But he does believe in these rituals, these experiences, these various traditions as a way to get to know yourself and your world better. And that that connection is essential for being more human, that that connection to other people. And so uh, his feeling that like you reduce the experience to the drug puts too much on the drug, that the drug is a useful tool like anything else. But notice, you know, each of these tools that he's using often are exclusionary tools. Not a lot mm -hmm. of Zen Buddhists are like also do yoga and also do this other thing. And all, and and for him, he's like, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the way Bruce Lee thought about martial arts, right? The point is not the art. 
The point is where the art gets you. And that seems to be his approach to spirituality, that where you are arriving, what you are being, what is being revealed to you is way more important than the thing itself. Uh, and, and so this guy, he, he's so focused on these chemicals, he's ignoring the experiences that those chemicals may or may not be opening him up to. Right. And it, I also think it looks as if Jodorowsky is very skeptical about shortcuts to enlightenment. Yes. Right? The idea, yes. whether it be through poetry, whether it be through drugs, whether it be through physical development, that that's just examples that are used in the film, that that he, he, he realizes that it's kind of a all-encompassing type thing, where it's really sure. about, uh, about you know, the reason that he dives into different spiritual forms, different religions, different backgrounds, is because he's trying to find the not just trying to find like the one truth it's about kind of combining them all together and taking the best parts and you know just kind of jettisoning the rest um over to you uh julia I, again i don't necessarily want to know about your drug use past if you have any. uh I, I don't want you to reveal anything you don't feel comfortable revealing but um what do you think this film has to say about drug use and do you think that uh, a lot of the people who may have enjoyed this movie under the influence of drugs are maybe uh, coming at it from the wrong direction. Well, here's my opinion on LSD, because you have to understand I'm a Beatles fan, right? And all, all sure. you have to do yeah. is look at the Beatles before LSD and look at the Beatles after LSD. And you're <laughs> like, well, there you are, right? It's a complete, like, it's like their brains have been opened. And now it's this completely new style of music where they're able to like create and make freedom. And then on the other hand, you have someone like Ken Kesey, who was part of the MK Ultra experiment, where he was dosed with LSD in the lab, right, being mm -hmm. a lab rat, and then took that and brought it to the counterculture with the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead. Uh, and it became this cultural thing. So I think I can't separate LSD from creativity. Like, that's what it means to me, is that sure. it brings people to this higher level to do stuff. And obviously, Jodorowsky is not, doesn't need that. Like, he's already on this different level anyway. But I'm sure him for him taking LSD was maybe not transformative, but definitely interesting and something mm -hmm. that he could probably see from a different angle. I have to say, I think watching this movie on any drug is a terrible idea because it's just <laughs> not going to be fun, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have something that you're going to have a good time and yeah. like enjoy yourself and not be freaking out for a good point of it, you know? And like any one of these shots can take you on any drug down any sort of rabbit hole mentally. And you're like, I don't even want to open any of those doors. So like, you know, I, I watching it sober, 100%, but like, I can't imagine watching this on hallucinogens. Jesus. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel overwhelmed when I'm watching it completely straight. Yeah, exactly. no, I agree. Um, I should mention, by the way, that Jodorowsky isn't necessarily judgmental about drug use. It, no. it, one of the things he says on the commentary is the idea that it, it can actually, uh, I guess, help uh, open your mind a little, but it shortens your life at the same time. And that's not what he's interested in, right? That he's more interested in kind of keeping his mind open over <laughs> a long period of time, though he's also not interested in immortality, as he's made very clear and is kind of discussed in the movie proper. Uh, we're just going to jump into the movie in just a second. The last thing I want to talk about is the soundtrack of the film. Uh, it is amazing. Just like El Topo's, uh, partially composed by Jodorowsky himself, along with the American jazz trumpetist Don Cherry, um, as well as uh, credited in on the soundtrack is Ronald Frangipane, who passed away in 2020. Uh, Don Cherry and Jodorowsky apparently worked very closely on the soundtrack to this. He liked Don Cherry, I guess, because of his improvisational nature. I want to get your kind of take on 
the the style of the soundtrack that we have here uh it feels very appropriate to the material that we're watching again just like el topo it's not really like a lot of the other soundtracks of movies at the time but at least el topo you kind of felt like oh it's not aping spaghetti western themes it's doing something different here it goes into some really memorable but very different places start going back to you julia what do you think of the soundtrack to the holy mountain I can't really separate it from the film. Like I can't imagine yeah. watching, listening to it separately because it just fits the imagery so perfectly that it doesn't seem like something you would like put on, like the Top Gun soundtrack or something, right? <laughs> 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 I don't know why that one came to mind, but here we are. Um, you know, it's 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 just like the film where it's going to ask you to be uncomfortable in some places and be weird and be loud and be uh strange but it just goes along with the whole bit of the film and the audio has to be just as mysterious and weird as the rest of the movie itself or else i think it would be a clash yeah absolutely one of the musical moments that does kind of stick out to me is there's just a very brief part when you're going through cell's backstory she's the uh war she makes the war toys uh we'll get to that a little bit later but as she's showing these toys that are kind of um designed around different religions and and talking about uh kind of counterculture war i guess you would say toys that would go to actually people protesting that they play this like rock music during it and it's really the only kind of music that feels very much of the time that this movie uh happened but i have to say it also kicks ass it's really really great (laughs) this this kind of short kind of piece of rock and roll music and it just reminds me oh right like this is this is an era where he would have been surrounded by that kind of music, but Jodorowsky uh, obviously knows how to compose music like that. And it made me kind of picture in my mind, what would a Jodorowsky rock album have been like? And it oh, he could have got together go- with the Beatles and done it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it also, also would have been very strange to have George Harrison starring in your movie and not provide any music for it whatsoever. But I guess that was uh, the plan because, I mean, I guess he would have had access to Beatles music if he had Alan Klein helping make the movie. Uh, anyway, my brain is just going into all sorts of musical directions. Liam, you're a musical person. What do you think of the soundtrack to The Holy Mountain? Oh, it's it fits perfectly. But again, I got to agree with Julie on this one. I don't know what it would be like to put the album. I, I Maybe it would be great. I don't want to say it wouldn't be great. And I don't have it. So who knows? Well, I might have actually bought it and had not listened to it yet. Is that weird? <laughs> I think because I, I remember seeing it at a store, but I don't remember if I got it or not. Um, uh, this is what happens when you move and you lose track of your records. Uh, um, yeah, but I don't picture myself putting it on to just vibe out, right? Not not because there aren't some very, like, just relaxing, interesting pieces, some, some really haunting sort of melodies. There's also some insane bits that I just feel like, could you imagine putting this record on and reading a book? You'd be, like, really in the zone in one moment, and then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, what the fuck was that? You know, like, I I don't know. I, I uh, But, but yeah, I just think it works really well. It, it's funny, you guys, you know, obviously you're bringing up the Beatles, but if I was actually going to pick a musician to work with Jodorowsky, it would have to be Frank Zappa. Like, I just think, oh like, gosh. Jodorowsky, and, I mean, for all we know, considering how many famous people just showed up at Zappa's house back then, maybe they actually did hang out, just, you know, Jodorowsky <laughs> and Zappa. That's very possible. But, uh but they might, I, they might, you know, they also seem like the kind of people who might have hated each other. Do you know, you know, it's just true. a really no, strong personality. <laughs> that is possible, but I, I, I doubt it. I don't know. Who knows? It's, it's, it's impossible. To, I don't know. Maybe I'll Google Zappa and Jogoraski <laughs> after this just to see. Uh, it also, I mean, I guess the, some of the other musicians that may have come to mind are musicians that he almost did collaborate with, with which is Pink Floyd, who are supposed to be part of the uh, Dune soundtrack. Uh, and, and, you know, another, 
another uh, group of artists that are connected to um, a kind of a history of drug use and both the good and bad sides of that. Uh, but uh, let's not dive so far into Pink Floyd, no matter how much I enjoy them. Let us talk about the Holy Mountain. So we'll start with part one, uh, which uh, mostly focuses on the thief character. So this starts with a man who is later identified as a thief. He represents the fool tarot card. Lying in the desert with flies covering his face, he's surrounded by a horde of nude children with green leaves covering their genitals. They run towards him, remove a flower attached to his hand, and then along with a man without any limbs, they tie the thief to a pole and begin to throw rocks at him. As soon as one hits him on the forehead, he sort of awakens, detaches himself from the pole and scares the children away. Uh, can we say, it's not, a, it's not just a pole, it's like a crucifixion it's like a cross it is like it's like a crucifix it, it is uh suggested very early on that he is a christ figure which will be <laughs> reinforced very soon in uh in sort of uh, some of the things we're going to talk about here the fool grabs a rock threatens the limbless man with it but they both share a joint instead become friends travel into the city where they make money entertaining tourists we'll talk about that in just a little bit because the thief uh, resembles jesus christ in appearance some locals drug him create wax christ statues with his passed out body after he awakens surrounded by the christ statues he destroys all of them except one a a group of prostitutes come across him on the street and one of them falls in love with him. The thief walks into a hall with soldiers dancing with the locals, has a dispute with the priest who kicks him out. He then eats the face of the wax statue, uh, attaches a balloon to it and sends it into the sky, uh, symbolically, of course, eating the body of Christ and offering himself up to heaven. And after that, he notices a crowd gathering around a tall tower where a large hook with a bag of gold has been sent down in exchange for food. Uh, the thief, wishing to find the source of the gold, goes up into the tower where he finds the alchemist uh, played by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, so much going on in this uh, in this first segment, this first part of The Holy Mountain. I want to get kind of general thoughts, general interpretations before we get into a little bit more detail. Uh, starting with you, Julia, what do you think of this first section of the movie? Uh, any memorable parts for you? is probably my least favorite section actually i think i like mm -hmm. them ascending as we go into the film but it, it's definitely I, I like that it it sends you on kind of a wrong path because you mm -hmm. think you know what this movie is about from this first section and then it takes a complete sharp turn which it does again at the third section where you're just like wait what oh okay we're going to this whole different whole new world now okay let's do it so i do love that it's this journey that goes from kind of simple to more and more complex as you go along um and i I, you know, I guess for me as, you know, an actor and a filmmaker, I look at this, a lot of his movies from the filmmaking point of view. So I sure. see you know, hundreds of naked children with green stuff on them. And like somebody had to make those and somebody had to yep. put one on every single person. And they the, all the little tiny details of the costuming and the set design and like the animals and all that stuff. Like there's people back there doing that. And so I think, you know, you were saying doing the filmmaking of the back, uh, you know, the making of would be very interesting of this. And I agree because I just like, how do you even come together with this many extras and this many costumes and this many people to make something so fantastic? Uh, and yet everything is so precise. Like I just picture Joe Dorowski doing everything, like literally everything, like every job on set, he's doing the catering. He's like fixing everybody's makeup. Like he's doing that's <laughs> in my head. I know he didn't, but like in my head, it's like every single thing is him. I mean, it's sort of like that, right? Because he designed the costumes for the film, right? He did. The, uh, he was involved deeply with the editing. He's involved really with every creative decision, and you can tell that this is his vision. But one of the things I like most about filmmaking as an art form is that it's both uh, incredibly precise, but also improvisational at the same time. So you get all of this very kind of 
uh, all this preparation about how everything is going to be, where it's going to be filmed, what people are going to say, and then it can kind of all go out the window once you're actually there on set filming. And that's really exciting as uh, someone who's kind of artistically minded. But I'm, I think I'm with you, Julia. It's, I, I don't want to say that I don't like this first section. Yeah, uh, me neither. I, I love it, but it's just least. Yeah, yeah, least, right? And also because a lot of it is set up. A lot of it is you're trying to get it, kind of get a, it, it feels kind of episodic because you're kind of going from place to place. In some ways, it feels a little bit more like El Topo. Uh, it, it kind of also feels like it's out of time. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, you're like, well, when is this supposed to take place? But then you go into a city, you see cars in the background. It's It looks like it's in a, a very similar world to ourselves. It, it, the world that this takes place in has a, a governmental entity that's kind of overwhelming, that there's soldiers in the street, that there are people uh, being raped, that there are people being assaulted. Uh, there's a lot of kind of really memorable imagery around those assaults. Uh, there's even I, you know, there's even commentary on Americans and the way that American tourists go to places without getting engaged with those places that I think is really, really interesting. I, I find a lot of it very memorable, but I don't necessarily connect uh, emotionally with it until this character goes and meets the alchemist for the first time, uh, which isn't to say there isn't still a lot to talk about here. Liam, your thoughts on the first section of The Holy Mountain? It's funny. I, I hear what you guys are saying as far as it being... Um maybe not the the most compelling part of the film in some ways for whatever reason on this view it felt very intense for me I, I, I it connected with me in a way that previously I only associated with uh the war planet with the with the with uh the gentleman who's basically like a fascist cop you know sure absolutely uh, because a lot of those scenes are so poignant that they feel torn out of the context of when the film was being made, you know? Um, and, and we find out in some of the things uh, that we read or, or watched that, you know, this was made shortly after there was a student slaughter by uh, military right. forces in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So they are even more political than this is what's happening in the world. It's like this happened here just a couple of years ago. Remember that, you know? Right, um, right, right. But that first section, which I think previously I saw, you know, in, in the commentary, uh, he refers to it as the primitive world. I think mm -hmm. um, I think for a lot of people who might have any sort of theological background, um, you might also use the word profane. This is this mm. is profane existence. This is the world as it is. This is the world on its surface with all of its flaws. And um, for whatever reason, watching it, it kind of fucked me up this time because I thought not so different from now really like nothing mm -hmm. that significant has basically changed if anything some of these things that are being caricatured have gotten worse and you know e even the portrayal of the history of the conquering of mexico which is shown in a way meant to remind everyone that it is a history bathed in blood and and animated by the, by the cross like w you know before we even get to the 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 thief being used to make false christ even before that, we're shown this history that's a reminder that, like, an not one, but one of many entire civilizations were eradicated for the ego of the church, uh, you know, in service to capitalism in Europe, but still, uh, and the violence and the gore of that. And uh, watching it, I was thinking about how that history is still contested today. Like, watching this 
in the 70s, someone might have been like, well, I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if that's right. And and, and you would think now, some uh, 50 years later, right, like or so, uh, that people would be like, well, we've all we've all read the text. We know that that's what happened. It's still contested history. There's still people who are like, well, those those, you know, indigenous folks weren't doing anything useful. They needed white people to come and kill them. So, you know, it's. It, it, it for whatever reason landed on me in a very heavy way um and i also found for the first time the beginning made a certain sense to me I, i've always thought the beginning of this movie is just like you're in for a ride just get on board whatever whatever and watching it this time like okay the fool uh slash thief is laying in uselessness he's covered in filth um he you know is for all you know sense of purpose is not you know conscious to the world and under some sort of persecution or violence or conflict he suddenly becomes aware right Mm -hmm. there's something about that that i was like oh that actually feels super insightful in a specific way not just in a general way but like oh i get that i could name that i could look at people i know's lives and say that's their moment where they're being you know pegged by naked children maybe maybe it's still a little obscure but you know what i mean like it it resonated with me in a way that it hadn't before and then i also felt that way you know him and the and his companion who jodorowsky in the in the commentary names as the divine nature of the fool he's the profane nature of the fool and the uh the the uh, differently abled man is the divine nature of the fool and they are combined together but they are also like amusing themselves in the midst, you know, they're walking past these people being forced to work by the soldiers. There's a mm-hmm. giant truck full of dead students, mostly nude, and they're having a good fucking time. You know, even even that uh, that portrayal, it begins with him being stoked and it ends with him being, ups- you know, a little upset. Maybe he didn't think this was what he was signing up for, but there's a sense in which um, he's slowly becoming aware of the world around him in a way that he hadn't before. Uh, sure. and, and the idea that in that state, he would then get uh, dragooned by, uh, you know, whether they're Christian or not, but any sort of idealistic sect and it would, you know, end up being a tool that they use rather than actually being enlightened by them. All of that resonated in a way that previously felt more abstract you know uh the fake jesus's church is bad it felt more specific (laughs) you could apply this not just to the obvious history of the christian church but to a lot of ideological organizations that that Mm -hmm. you know that they would make use of someone like that for their own benefit and all that kind of stuff so it it was interesting to me i had you know this is the fourth time i've watched it i had not made some of those more personal connections before which isn't to say those are the only interpretations of those images it's just for the first time i was like I'm not just finding this move me, moving in a abstract or emotional way. I'm like taking practical insight from this thing. Like I could show some of these scenes and be like, and this is why you should have a different major. Okay, that maybe not that specific, <laughs> but 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 actual real life things from it, which is like part of the point of the story and I just found that really interesting to me. Still, I also prefer the next section in in its beauty and its artistry, but the parts of this really hit me in a way that it hadn't previously. I do want to talk a little bit about the opening credits of the movie, simply because a lot of the imagery that people most connect with the the Holy Mountain comes from that opening credits. Where sure. You mm-hmm. see the two women getting their heads shaved. Uh, you know, there's a element of a, a Japanese tea ceremony that you have Jodorowsky himself with that large hat covering most of his face, so you can't actually see him. Um, I mean, I don't want to talk necessarily about the the your interpretations of it, but I will say that in terms of the striking imagery, it's interesting that we start with 
so, some of the really kind of uh, I think what what Jodorowsky describes as kind of like art movie esque uh, imagery, and then we move we, we kind of regress back into this sort of uh, El Topo esque uh, filth and urine and a lot of the the uh, the kind of more gross. Uh, uh, things that this movie has to show you, and one of the gross things, and and I'm I feel like well, even though we've talked about it a little bit on our previous podcast, I just want to talk about it briefly here. Is the animal violence that's on display in this film? Now, uh, there's there's certainly disturbing imagery, like having the flayed dogs on sticks that are being paraded in the street. But the one I'm speaking of specifically is we have our thief character. He is awakened to some extent. He has his limbless friend with him. He is kind of exposed to the concept of money. He wants to get more of it, so he works in a toad and chameleon circus. At the circus, it's uh, these toads and chameleons. They're dressed basically reproducing the conquest of Mexico with some dressing as Aztecs, 600 bullfrogs dressed as Spanish soldiers and priests. And uh, this segment, which again, is still visually stunning, it ends with these animals exploding. Uh, I mean, being blown up and, and for all intents and purposes, as far as I can find out, we're killed for real. Look, it is something that we are going to be struggling with from this point forward, and we've already struggled with a little bit. I'm not a fan of seeing animals killed for artistic purposes. I find it very disturbing to watch. It's the kind of thing that makes me, uh, uh, you know, wince when I'm watching it in a movie proper. Some people I know can't handle that at all. And if you are the kind of person that has a strong sensitivity to seeing animals uh, killed, or hurt, or I mean, or shown being hurt, then Jodorowsky's films might be a hard thing for that for you to kind of um, engage with. Back to you, Julia. Your thoughts on the Toad and Chameleon Circus? Well, you know, I think Liam put it very beautifully to say, you know, obviously it's representing this bloody battle, um, sure. which I, you know, so I appreciate it on an artistic level, but obviously on a rea realistic level, I, I don't, I don't. And I, I, it's one of those things where like, I can't show this movie to a lot of people and that's, yeah mostly why because mm -hmm. i can't show me like look isn't this movie great and then like you know they look at me during that scene and i'm like uh sorry it's just something that even though i appreciate it on this you know very creative level i just like i just i would erase it i would erase that scene you know and i do kind of mentally yeah. erase it I'm just like as it's going by i'm like okay okay here we go get past this bit and we're back you know and just don't don't i don't i don't like it you know it just makes me feel icky and it's yeah. frustrating because it's one aspect. Like you could probably, maybe not, maybe I'm wrong, but in my mind, you could accomplish the same effect without literally blowing up the toes. Yeah, just like the, the blood, like the blood pouring on them. We got it. We got it. Right. You know? Right. I mean, I think that in the mind of Jodorowsky, and I don't know if he has any regrets in regards to some of this. Certainly, he's addressed some of the concerns people have had in the past. That the reality of it, it it creates an extra level of connection with the audience, the knowledge that what you are seeing is real. It, you know, the fact that it's already talking about something that was very bloody that existed in real life that people are very far removed from. I mean, again, I don't want to justify it because I don't think it should be here. I made a little joke at the beginning of the episode, Liam, about the fighting dogs that we'll see later in the film. That's a part that really bothers me. Those are real fighting dogs. You see them actually injuring each other. There's a website online called Does the Dog Die? Uh, it's a website that kind of lists um, material in films that people might feel triggered by, that they might have issues with because uh, they might have something in their own history that it connects with, or maybe it's just something they don't want to see. And if you go to the Holy Mountain page on Does the Dog Die, it's just a list like, is there a dead animal? Does the dog die? Does an animal die? Are animals abused? Does a horse die? It's just yes, 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 all the way down the list, right? Uh, and it's, it's so, I do 
think that if you're going into seeing the Holy Mountain, you're probably already aware that you're going to be seeing a lot of very odd, strange, and unusual imagery. But it's I've never been able to overcome my distaste for the animal abuse that we see in this. No, but I guess the way I describe it is I say, like, it's the scope of humanity, right? You're right, seeing right. Like, some of the most beautiful things you're ever going to see, but the most horrible things as well. And I understand you need that huge divide to get it. And I, I yes, understood but yeah, I think you can discern for yourself too what would make sense to you. So for me, I agree, Doug. The dog fighting is a bit much. Uh, it, it feels unnecessary. But show like you know, snarling dogs, like yeah, get the same effect. Yeah, but like someone might feel similarly about as you said. The I don't know. Are were they dogs on the crosses or were they rabbits? I couldn't tell. I they were lambs. I, okay. I, well, whatever. I think, I, they, we I think do... they might be lambs because he says on the mm-hmm. commentary that they were all eaten later that day. That he right. had only borrowed them from a restaurant and that they were consumed. Now, maybe that's not true, but it is a reminder that, like, at some level, if your issue is just, well, I don't want to see any dead animal, then, like, I kind of want to hear that you're a super intense vegan. Because sure, I, I have seen people be like, well, there's animal corpses. And I'm like, bro, you live off of animal corpses. Like, at some point, you have to deal with your own complicity. So I don't know that the movie needs exploding frogs or fighting dogs. But if someone's like, well, there's also a dead horse, like, yeah, I mean, and and how sensitive are you going to be unless you're someone who literally has changed their whole life to not cause harm, which is, I, I think, a legitimate way to live. I'm not making fun of that way of living, but it, it is strange when people are so sensitive to every bit of animal violence when they live off of animal violence. Uh, so I don't know. It feels a little hypocritical to me if you push it too far. But that being said, I think the levels he goes to, and we've already talked about this, but it, 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 he definitely goes over the over the line, and and in some cases he acknowledges that, and in some cases he doesn't seem to address it. So you know, <laughs> I understand why people might feel a little bit like I don't like the way he treats animals in his films. Uh, but again, for me, it, it's a discernment thing. In some cases, I'm okay with it. In some cases, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I, I do think that it's a, it's not something we have to linger on necessarily, but I will say that that Toad and Chameleon Circus is a particularly egregious example of animal violence, and I could see people being disgusted by it, uh, you know, and, and at the time and, and even now going back to it. Uh, one thing that we, uh, we should mention is because of the budget of this film, even though it was high for a Mexican film, um, it was low overall. It meant that that there were a lot of guerrilla filmmaking tactics uh, employed by Jodorowsky in order to make it look more expensive than it actually was. And one of the things they did was film in Mexico City and outside of Mexico City. Uh, the tower, the tower that actually the thief goes up in, is part of a uh, series of sculptures called the Satellite Towers, uh, which is outside of Mexico City. And we see them film outside of this gigantic tower. I have to say, the reason I looked up what it was, and I'm glad I did, is because it's such a striking image, this massive colored red tower in the middle of this street. It's just unbelievable to, to see. Well, I don't know if they had permission to actually uh, attach things to the tower, but they certainly didn't have any permission to land a helicopter by that tower on the street. Apparently, they dressed up a actor as a policeman with the idea that if they had someone dressed as a policeman there, then the real police wouldn't be upset and, and people watching it wouldn't be able to shut them down. Uh, I mean, right out of the Larry Cohen uh, playbook there. But I just like the idea that in some ways, like this very impeccably designed movie, they were also kind of making it by the seat of their pants. And I feel like that's that is 
mostly the case in this first section of the movie mm -hmm. where it involves a lot of other people that it, it feels like it's in a lot more crowded areas that there's a lot more extras that have to be dealt with a lot more people who are confused as we know that sequence where the soldiers are dancing with the uh the uh the students i guess it would be um that that there was threats made to jodorowsky's life when they were filming that 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 you know there was a lot of conflict on this set that had to be overcome uh, and that said, the people who were on that set afterwards, they talk about it as this kind of amazing, serene environment where people were so happy to be working on the film. It just feels kind of at odds. I guess it, the, the uh, you know, the play's the thing, right? I mean, the, the end result is what it's all about. Um, before we move on to the second segment, any other thoughts on this? Any other moments that stick out to you, uh, starting with you, Liam? Well, I, it's funny because I think that the first time I watched it, I thought the eating of the Christ uh, face was one mm -hmm. of the most like awesome sacrilegious images you could think of in a way Absolutely. because it's so intense and I know I shared a video with you guys that I think uses it in a way meant to be like a sick metal yeah for <laughs> destroy the Christ and eat his face but then in the context of the film you're like oh no this is actually one of the most orthodox religious moments of the film he's <laughs> he's choosing the reality of this 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 message uh, over the falseness that he's presented with, it, and, and it really could be seen as a Eucharistic moment, which is not how I thought about it. The first time I'm watching it, I'm just so amazed at all the images. I wasn't thinking about the actual context. It was only <laughs> on this viewing that I thought, oh, it's actually, I, I don't know why anyone would be worried about that. I, I could show this image in church. I think this would work pretty well. you know. And, 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 and I like that. Even if it's a, maybe a little more personal, uh, it still sort of reflects that idea. And, and I don't know. It's, it, 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 it's yet another example of like, the different images in the film taking on new layers the more times you watch it. One of the great things uh, about the special features on the Blu-ray of The Holy Mountain is that there's a uh, piece called the A to Z of The Holy Mountain, which explains that the face of the Christ that is eaten is made of almond paste, and there's even a recipe to make your own if you Love want to, uh, <laughs> to chew chow down on the face of Jesus at home. Uh, apparently, it was delicious, which I do, I do love to hear, <laughs> actually. <laughs> just the idea that for that moment, the actor was enjoying himself as he was eating Jesus' nose. Uh, Julia, any other moments that stick out from you, for you from the uh, first section of this film? Well, I think we should talk about um, the prostitute that he meets up with, who we're yeah, going to be seeing yeah. throughout the rest of this film. Uh, so she's part of a band of, of prostitutes of all shapes, sizes, and ages. And uh, they have, and also has a monkey friend who hangs out with her. And there is, when we show The Holy Mountain that time that I saw it at the New Beverly, there was, the, the prostitutes in this film all have the same outfit. And it's like, an mm -hmm. I'm sure Jodorowsky, you know, designed it. It's incredible. I love that outfit so much. And mm -hmm. when we showed Holy Mountain that time, I saw it, there was someone who came cosplayed as one of wow. those prostitutes. Love wow. It. And I was like, Amazing. wow, you get so many points from me for that. Like, that's so niche. And like three people will get it, but we love it so much. And, and the prostitutes end up being almost like a disciples briefly for this character. And then we have this kind of main prostitute played by Anna Desaad, uh, who uh, follows him along with her chimpanzee, played by the chimpanzee actor Chucho Chucho uh, for the rest of the <laughs> film and even uh, even connects in with the end of the film proper. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, there is a, uh, a commentary on pedophilia uh, in that segment as well, where a gentleman takes out his false eye and gives it to a very, very young prostitute. Again, 
we're, if, if you are not, uh, if you're listening to this without having seen the film, there is a lot of strange imagery in here. I think we've kind of not nailed that and uh, we're kind of beating a dead horse with it at this point. And now let's move on to part two of The Holy Mountain, The Tower. Uh, I think uh, for a lot of people, this is the most memorable imagery that's in the film. It's usually when people uh, show screenshots or they show images referring to The Holy Mountain. A lot of it comes from this section. Uh, so in terms of what happens in The Tower section, after a confrontation with the alchemist, the thief defecates into a container. The excrement is transformed into gold by the alchemist, who proclaims, Your excrement, you can change yourself into gold. The thief accepts the gold, but smashes a mirror with it when uh, shown his reflection. The alchemist then takes the thief as an apprentice. The thief is introduced to seven people who will accompany him on his journey. Each is introduced as a personification of one of the planets, in particular the negative characteristics that are associated with it. They consist of a cosmetics manufacturer representing Venus, a weapons manufacturer representing Mars, a millionaire art dealer representing Jupiter, a war toy maker representing Saturn, a political financial advisor representing Uranus, Uranus, a police chief representing Neptune, and an architect representing Pluto. The alchemist instructs the seven to burn their money as well as wax images of themselves. And together with the alchemist, the thief, and the alchemist's assistant, they form a group of ten and leave the tower. Uh, a lot of really amazing imagery in this uh, sequence, particularly the rainbow room, uh, which is maybe the thing that people most connect with the Holy Mountain. Just a, a, just unbelievable costumes, unbelievable set design. I mean, and you sometimes even forget, or at least I should say, I forget, just the kind of the weird details that are around. So I think there's a pelican that shows up at some point. There's a camel in the background of a lot of these scenes, just kind of strange animals that are all supposed to be representative of one thing or another. Sometimes things that I have, have no idea what they're about, but uh, I really love this entire section. Maybe it's because it introduces Jodorowsky himself into the film and we get a little bit more dialogue because this is not a dialogue heavy movie. And as Jodorowsky mentions on the commentary, even when there is dialogue, a lot of times people's mouths are not moving because he's not interested in that. And I find that fascinating as well. I love the sound design that's going on in this film. Uh, let's start with you, Julia. Your thoughts on the tower section of the film and uh, what are your feelings on it overall? I think this might be my favorite my favorite section. I think, you know, you, you, you get to meet all of these different characters who have all these very different aesthetics and these very different principles. I, I like that you are, because Jodorowsky seems like the master filmmaker of making this whole thing. It makes sense for him to be the master and to be taking you through his own film in a way, which I like about this segment a whole lot. I love, again, all the all the visuals are, are so incredible. And I love every character has its own little deal. And some of them I don't quite understand and that's okay because this is how he works. <laughs> and I go, all right, we'll just take you along for the ride. And all of the different, you know, how he must have thought about how deeply about each character and how they have to represent this specific thing and not only from the tarot but also from the planets and also you know what is what are their what does their wardrobe look like what does their house look like what does their family look like all of these little details that he just does in his own specific way and that's why it feels so it's like Joe Rossi condensed in this little section I feel absolutely and I love that the movie has these kind of because they do little profiles on each of these planets, all, each of these people, that they're almost like short films in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And you suddenly like switch to this completely different visual style with a different location. And you see the, I mean, you talk about the depth of creativity that Jodorowsky has. I mean, there's, it, it, when I think of this part of the movie, I think of it almost like a Ken Russell movie in that it's, it's able to go to these wild, weird places and the visuals kind of really uh, are lockstep with the weirdness that you're mm -hmm. being kind of, uh, of, of, um, that's part of the script, but it really is reflected on the screen itself as well. So many odd moments. Liam, your thoughts on the tower section? Uh, how does this uh, rank for you, if you want to rank it, in terms of your uh, portions of the film? 
I mean, I, I definitely love it. Uh, I think it has a lot of magic in it. I think from a purely, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, we probably don't spend enough time talking about just the technicality of what uh, Jodorowsky's doing. But mm-hmm. the idea of him saying, like, okay, in this section, outside of the very beginning when the alchemist and the thief interact, narratively speaking, not a lot is happening. And so th- the idea that, okay, well, then I'm going to stretch my legs here with costume, set design, uh, mind-warping imagery. Like, this is right. really a long introduction of a bunch of characters. And in another movie, this would be the dead zone of the film. Absolutely. In another movie, this would be the part where people are going, oh, my God, you should have cut this out. And instead, it's like the most enticing part because it's the part where he is being the most creative and the most um, – I think just aesthetic, right? Like that that mm-hmm. that inclination he has to allow the image speak instead of the words, to allow the the things that you're seeing and experiencing be more important than the narrative goals it is at most display here and it's the strongest part of the movie. I think that says a lot and uh there's just a lot here that I, you know, I agree with you Julia like I'm not saying I understand all of it. There's definitely parts of these characters where I'm like I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Uh, but but it doesn't it doesn't in a way matter. Like there, there still feels and maybe this is just me, but it, there still feels to be something true about each one of these people that like maybe I don't understand all the details of what he's reaching for. But there's something there where I'm like, OK, all right, I'm tracking you in general what you're reaching for, even if I, you know, I can't put all the pieces together uh and you know we're focusing a little bit in what we're saying on those characters the stuff leading up to the characters also magical i mean if you yeah. were to tell me the part where this dirty hippie gets his butt washed <laughs> is like gonna be a magical scene but actually it kind of is right like the scene where they're chopping a, a, a rock with a hatchet Yep. magical like each of these scenarios is so visually astounding not a lot has to happen i mean in the a to z of uh of holy mountain that you referred to doug the narrator sort of criticized uh jodorowsky a little bit for that fight scene only because jodorowsky was such an expert in jujitsu that he's like you could have done a little bit more that could have been a little more arresting to watch right but like I had never had that thought before. It had never occurred to me, oh, what a bummer of a fight scene. I'm wrapped in. The moment he comes through that paper wall, I'm like, what is going to happen? You know, like, I, mm-hmm. I'm like, so, like that slow walk across the rainbow room yes. with a knife mm-hmm. out, that is unbelievable. That is insane filmmaking. That shot is is unbelievable. It's It's just a reminder that, like, events do not define a film per se. Uh, and, and they certainly don't, for me, determine my experience. Even the parts where it feels like they're just talking. I mean, at one point, they watch an extended slideshow. Like, a slideshow <laughs> should be a thing I fall asleep during, and I'm, like, amazed at what's happening. Um, I just think, like, every scenario in this section, whether they are insightful in a way that rings true to me like i really get it or they're utterly baffling i don't understand why what's happening is happening they're all arresting i it has my attention fully in a way that not every film does 
Mm-hmm. At this point, I wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to Raphael Kokiti, the cinematographer of The yes. Holy Mountain, as yes. well as El Topo and Fando and Liss, uh, who, I mean, as much as we give Jodorowsky credit for a lot of the visual style of these three movies that we've talked about or are in the process of talking about right now, I mean, Kokiti is a big part of bringing that imagery to life. I know that uh, Jodorowsky, I guess he conflicted a lot with Kirkiti, specifically in the third section of this film, which takes a very different visual turn. But, uh, I mean, without a very competent cinematographer who was able to take someone who had no experience with filmmaking and and turn that into reality, then who knows what kind of mess this could theoretically be. But instead, it's one of the most visually striking uh, sequences and really part of the most visually striking movies ever made. Um, so we are introduced, as we mentioned, to these seven characters all representing different planets, all then leading to different small segments uh, that are meant to show what they do in their real life, their jobs, and all of them have these incredible moments within them. I wish we could go through each one of them individually, but we would be here all day. I want to get from each of you which of these, if there's, or there could be more than one that could be your favorite, but which of these is your favorite and uh, and what makes it your favorite? Uh, And by the way, I should mention, even though it's your favorite, it doesn't mean that you have to have uh, that you are morally connected with it, that you think that sure, what happens yeah. in them is something that you agree with, uh, but uh, just something that you most connect with or that you most enjoy. Starting with you, Julia, what is your favorite of the planets? Um, I like uh, Isla. I like Mars, female Mars, uh, mm-hmm. because you the, the first shot of her is this incredible bedroom where this bed that like the top retracts and she's snoozing in there with two hot babes and dogs. And I was like, well, yep. hell yeah, I'm on board. <laughs> yes, sir. And then like, then let's, then let's have like a really sexy, her getting ready outfit, but it's all in men's clothes. And I'm like, mm-hmm. don't think I've seen that before. It's like, you're having a strip on instead of a strip tease off. And then also putting on men's clothes and it's just as sexy. And then she comes out and she's like being a badass and being the boss and selling war toys and just kicking ass. She's like a rock star. I want to see her, like play her that rad rock tune you mentioned and like be in her rad concert. I would go watch that. <laughs> and that, yeah, that, that's actually also the sequence that has that kind of little bit of rock music. Yeah. it's mm-hmm. I, I love that sequence as well. Uh, I also think that it's very interesting that the personification of Mars is a woman in this, which uh, it would be, you know, kind of unexpected thing, certainly at the time. Uh, Again, I love all of these segments. I'm not going to pick mine yet simply because I worry that it's going to conflict with Liam was going about to say. But Liam, what's your favorite of the seven planets? It's really hard for me to choose. I think there's something magical in every one. I think on my mind on this viewing was Axon um, because it it's so fucking relevant. Like the the fascism that is animating his section about Neptune is like – still a relevant caricature of our police force today. You know what I mean? Like watching it, 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 I just thought, oh man, this feels like too real. It feels too like present in my life in a way that um, was just really striking to me. And and I think uh, it has some of the more daring the, in the way it portrays the crackdown on the students and takes away some of the edifice of special effects you know like there are moments in that section that are truly upsetting and yet they're also not right because they are abstract interpretations of that violence and something about that has always struck me as very magical um granted that's on this viewing on a different viewing i might have gone for any one of the other ones uh especially i find the the love machine uh, section mm-hmm. to be yes. really and 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 it was I will say I will say for this watch 
it was the first time I ever listened to the commentary. And I've always thought I really like the love machine. I love the humor of it. I love everything about it. I do wonder if Yodorowsky's being maybe too critical on technology, which I think is a double edged sword. And then to hear the commentary, he's like, Oh, inevitably we're going to like integrate with machines and there's no escaping that. That's just who we are as people. It's just also dangerous. And I was like, Oh, Okay, well then we're all the same. Okay, <laughs> me and Yoda are on the same page. I didn't know. I wasn't sure, and that like it really like enhanced my viewing of that scene. But, but on that's this- what that's what Annabelle Five was about. I mean, that's right. kind of his. Right. You know, that's really early, kind of AI replicant type stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think the I think though the 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 humor of it might be taken, and at least it was taken on me on first viewing as kind of being like, ugh machines look at this it's not yeah, whatever blah blah right, right. And, and and that wasn't really the intention at all and i i, I and i think it, i think it's one of those sections where people maybe uh, at least in the reviews i read laugh at the movie and it it bums me out because i'm like the movie's being funny on purpose here this is not yeah. a time to mock the movie the movie is doing a thing on purpose and it's meant to be funny uh and i i don't know anyways that being said, the the axon section, this viewing really like stuck with me, and I found myself thinking about the imagery of it. The uh, the hall of a thousand testicles, like something like that. Yeah, well, yeah, I think absolutely. I think that I think that combination of the glorification of a certain kind of masculinity at the mm-hmm. expense of masculinity um and the religiosity of it the fake devotion to axon himself the fact that he has a fake beard the scene where he where he performs a ceremony he's wearing a fake beard and there was just something about that fake beard that i thought (laughs) yeah that's right that's fucking right you know there was just there's there's just something about it that i found very insightful in a way that i hadn't i had before but it just struck me more this time um, I mean, I, I love both of those segments. Uh, I, I do want to point back to the clan section. You mentioned the the uh, sex with the computer uh, that, sure, yeah. that results in a computer ejaculation that then leads to the birth of another machine. I mean, people who don't find the humor in this movie are just not looking properly, right. I think. Um, but the other part of that particular segment I really love is he has like an art factory where people yeah. are like lowering their buttocks on with they're covered in paint and lowering them onto paper. And it just, you know, the, the idea of the commodification of art and the factory creation. I mean, take that can, Andy Warhol. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> right. You can probably guess who that's referred to. It actually reminded me a little also of, of uh, Banksy's film uh, exit through the gift shop. And oh, that's, he was that movie's so good. Yeah. About the commodification of art at that time. And it's something that obviously, you know, I, there's a lot of satirical elements in this movie that are commenting directly at specific people at that t- time. Um, one of the great things about the Holy Mountain is that I think it looks forward, that it's a very forward looking movie, but it's also very much a movie of its time, whether it be the authoritarian kind of visuals of a lot of the police forces and things like that. Um, and of course, the violence against people that we see throughout this. The one section I wanted to bring up was the cell section uh, played by Valerie Jodorowsky, the wife of Alejandro Jodorowsky, who plays a war toy maker in this. Um, she dresses a clown at the beginning, almost looks a little bit like Ronald McDonald. Uh, there's some imagery that's supposed to represent Disney, I think, in this section. Uh, but she also is an advisor uh, regarding war uh, to different kind of uh, heads of state. And there's this great moment where she is, there's just a decision there's just a decision that suddenly Peru is the enemy. So you have to create 
this situation where everyone's going to hate Peru. You're going to create propaganda. You're going to create a, a comic book where the hero hates Peru. I, I know that I guess the people of Peru did not like this segment very much, even though it's not meant to be any sort of insult to Peruvians. It's really supposed to be about the manufacturing of war. And I just think it's very insightful and very interesting. And again, as you were saying about other segments, Liam, just as applicable today as it was when it was made in the uh, in the 70s, uh, when I think about the the um, participation of the U.S. military with certain high-budgeted movies like the Transformers and Marvel mm -hmm, movies mm -hmm. and the way that that is, you know, kind of insidiously integrates itself into society is still something that I think is really, really uh, interesting and unique about this movie. But also the casting of his wife as this character. Uh, Joe Duraski in the commentary doesn't say much about it outside of this is my wife. But, I mean, what a what a strange, like, why why this character? Of all the characters in the film, would he have his wife play? Do you have any thoughts on that, Liam? I don't, actually. That's an interesting yeah. question. It hadn't even occurred to me. Maybe she asked yeah. to play that part. Exactly. It could be something as simple as that. It's just that when it comes to segments in this film, I always wonder how much of it is an accident and how much of it is very specific. And one of the things we mentioned at the beginning was that some of these actors were cast because of their relationship with these planets and what they, it, you know, the millionaire uh, art dealer was a millionaire who had an art collection that the fascist character had fascist tendencies in real life. And I just wonder what was it about his wife that made her appropriate for that role? Or was it just something he saw in her that made her appropriate? Yeah, Liam. Well, I, I find myself wondering too, like her outfit when she takes off the clown outfit and she comes out, it has mm. a very um, wife of the dictator in South America feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like it's giving off you very. You can say Evita. Everybody it's get giving Evita. off yeah. very Evita vibes, but not just Evita, right? It was a popular style of a certain sure. kind of folk at that time, and and I wonder that decision is so specific that I do wonder, like, are there also people he's poking at that maybe we're not picking up on immediately? Like, of course, my thought goes to Evita, but I'm like, eh, a lot of people had this style. Like, what is it? Just an easy reference for a certain kind of fascism? I I don't know, but I definitely was like huh, that's an interesting choice. That's a very specific look we're doing in our film set in Mexico. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I guess I feel like every choice he makes has something specific right. yes. behind it. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, mm -hmm. there, he has this grand plan in his head. And even I listened to the commentary for the first time this time too. And even then I'm like, I learned a lot of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. All right. I, you know, like they all made sense, but there's so much of it that I was like, you're never going to be able to get him to tell you everything. Exactly. And so, you never, know, it, but never. I think, you know, we, we mentioned briefly David Lynch and I feel like it's the same kind of thing where you watch a David Lynch movie and you're like, okay, it doesn't make sense to me, but it clearly makes sense to him. Right. right. And you're it's just, about trust. it's about trust, trusting that he has some thought behind it. And that there are some filmmakers who make surrealistic films where I kind of reject them because I'm like, I don't trust that the brain activity behind this has anything going on more than just putting weird imagery on screen. But with yeah. David Lynch and Jodorowsky, obviously we all have trust in that there's more going on here. Definitely. It's, it's funny though, because even though I find them as resonant, like it's easy for us to, to, to sort of compare them. I also wonder if their style is so different, partly because I feel like their goals are different. Like I feel like they're, they're, they're reaching for something different. And, and I don't know. So, sometimes with Yodorowsky, I wonder if he's surprised at some of the things that we're confused by. Like, I, w I wonder to what extent he's like, oh, obviously, this reference is obvious. And we're going, 
uh, okay, I don't know. Is it obvious? Right. I don't know. Whereas if you said to David Lynch, like, well, this part was confusing, he would just be like, yes. Yes. And that's the thing. Like, David Lynch explains nothing. Jodorowsky is happy to explain anything. That's it. That's exactly it, right? We have the commentary. We have the interviews. He doesn't just say, oh, I think this is supposed to represent this. He's like, this means this. This means this. While David Lynch, not only will he not put a commentary on a movie, he won't even put chapter stops. He doesn't want people to have the easy right. way to, to figure things out. They just, I think, have a very different approach to what they want people to get out of their movies. Well, and it's very revealing, too, that sometimes Jodorowsky will be like, this means this. Also, it could mean this. And you're like, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. But I think that's the that's the idea, right? That a symbol has power beyond the first explanation. So if he's like, this is what I was thinking of when I did it, he could also then be like, also, now I look at it and I think it's also this, or this was also on my mind, or I'm referencing this as well. You know what I mean? Like, And that's just how it is, you know? I'm jumping ahead a little, but just going back to what you were saying, Liam, about Jodorowsky sometimes seems to think that the audience should understand something that, to me, as a uh, as a viewer, like is completely incomprehensible. Is very late in the movie, the the group of people that are traveling to the mountain, they uh, enter an area where they kind of have visions, they have dreams and nightmares that they're experiencing, and one of them is one of the gentlemen is terrified of the idea of castration. So I guess he asked the cast what they were scared of, and he tried to m integrate that into the movie. And the way that that's represented is, of course, with a scene of castration, but it's also a tree covered in castrated chickens with a woman that's supposed to represent his mother beckoning him towards it. I didn't understand what the chickens were supposed to be or what the woman was supposed to be. But to Jodorowsky, of course, it makes perfect sense. But until he explained it, I was like, I get that it's about castration. What's the chicken supposed to be about? How am I supposed to know that they're all supposed to be castrated chickens? But uh, the, just... The the I, I agree. I thought they were beheaded chickens. And then yes. when he said that they were castrated, I was like... Does, are we talking about two different heads here? Like, what are we, what are we supposed to? Do? But, but I'll, I'll disagree with you when he said, and it's his mother. I was like, oh yes, of course it is. Like that was like <laughs> that made perfect sense. I, I, if you had asked me without that commentary, who's the woman who cuts off his penis? I would have said, well, obviously it's his mother. That's who else on the chicken tree is going to castrate you? Your mother, of course, castrates right. you. Like, I mean, that's well, what happens. Fair enough. <laughs> that just seems obvious to me. I want to uh, briefly mention uh, the written woman, the one character we haven't really referred to at sure, all. Yeah. Uh, basically, the the uh, the person who assists the alchemist, played by Jodorowsky in this film, played by Zamira Saunders. She is covered with different religious iconography and symbols. Um, I, I mean, it's just I think it's supposed to represent. There's a lot of that throughout the film, right? It's taking from all religions. There's a part where uh, I think it's um, I think it might be with the excrement turned to gold, where he he has the Jewish um, wrappings on his arm, and there's a lot of like. I wonder, again, not being part of these different religious uh, congregations and, and belief systems, like the idea of someone integrating some of these religious tendencies and religious traditions, I wonder how offensive some other people might find that. But He's I don't offending think that... everybody with this yeah. entire movie, with everything. Yeah. Like if you're going to, yeah. I guarantee you, you watch this movie, you will find something that offends you 100%. Yeah. Exactly, That's especially if you're looking for it, which certain people seem to be at the time. It's worth keeping in mind that some of these combinations come from the alchemist tradition, and uh, right. a, a lot of alchemists ended up dead, and there's a reason right. for that. Like that, right. that, that alchemists, uh, you know, whether they were in a Christian nation or not, they were studying the Kabbalah, they were studying the Quran, they were studying ancient texts that had been banned in other societies, like. Being an alchemist means you are crossing boundaries. I mean, literally, the practice itself is what if we smush magic and science together to form right. something new? And I think, like, 
that matters and that's like his influence and so like it for me as someone who feels like the the heretic throughout history deserves more respect it 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 just rings as like a really authentic way to look for truth is to be unwilling to be limited by any sort of any sort of expectation any other final thoughts on the tower section of the holy mountain Uh, starting with you julia any final thoughts on the on the tower uh, well, I mean, we haven't taken talked about the 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 eye room, the set, the That's set right. that everybody yes. loves. Yes. You know, the gorgeous tarot room and the the, the spinning camera and just you know, everyone pushing their money into flames. It's just Absolutely. it's so gorgeous and and obviously has been ripped off a thousand times by everything. <laughs> and I, you know, it's funny listening to the commentary because he sounds. You know, we talk about ego and and how he's this this law you're supposed to be getting rid of your ego in this movie but i you know i find jordowski is a quite an egotistical guy and has no <laughs> no problem tuning his own horn and there's so many times in the commentaries like black black nail polish i was first person to do that everybody's copying <laughs> yeah. me and i was like okay and like so many times like i did that first that was me and i was like okay you probably did and i'm not saying you didn't but you are an unreliable annihilator and you're like you're no problem just being like that was me guys just in case you didn't know <laughs> and i love that um I mean, everything he does delights me. So he just, you know, always wins my, he's won my heart long ago. But I think those sets are like the, besides the rainbow room, uh, the some of the most beautiful and memorable from the set. I will say that I have met somebody who had the Holy Mountain Alchemist tattoo of like him and the two assistants on right. other side from the beginning. So like that kind of stuff is stuff people are getting tattooed on them, just FYI. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, absolutely. And I could totally uh, see even non-super fans, people who just love the imagery, uh, trying to, uh, to to put that on their skin. Yeah, that eyeball room in particular is so memorable. And even that sequence of them pushing these massive piles of cash into it, one of the things uh, Jodorowsky also mentions on the commentary, and it's something I noticed in uh, and, and most of my viewings, is the way that, that there's that one bill that kind of flies into the air from the fire and then just kind of floats down as it goes, uh, as the scene goes on. And it's just, he's like, what luck, you know? He said it's a miracle, a dollar from heaven. Uh, really, really interesting, really, really uh, well put together and memorable. Liam, any other final thoughts for you on the tower? Just that it's it's worth noting, you know, we've broken these films or these sections of the film up, uh, sort of like on the events in them. But it's worth noting something that I had, I guess I had subconsciously recognized it, but I needed Jodorowsky to say it on the commentary for me to really really realize it. Which is when all the images are burning in the eyeball room. That's sort of the end of the like high design element of the film and the Absolutely. super controlled mm-hmm. uh, style. And that suddenly we switch to a style that's a lot more cinema verite, handheld Absolutely. stuff, rough, yep. rough and ready shooting. And I knew intellectually, maybe at some level that was true, but like having him say it, it was like, oh, yeah, we've we've moved to a whole different world. We're in a whole different scenario. And like just something about that was like really powerful i don't know just realizing that 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 break and what it meant thematically going forward i thought was pretty interesting and it just kind of looks like you're moving from like a narrative film to a documentary yes yes yeah yeah i mean that's why this movie is kind of three movies in one right three three sections that do break apart kind of cleanly because they all have very different styles but this third one in particular is such a strange decision for jodorowsky specifically to take simply because up to this point we've seen him work in a very stylized form, right? In, in a very kind of artistic form. But now he's moving into a style that we've never seen him do before. Where again, as you said, very documentary-like, very verite-like, very handheld on location in these 
these gorgeous mountainous locations with these uh, amazing backgrounds to them. Uh, but we'll talk about that, of course, in the third section, which is what we're going to move into right now, the mountain itself. So the Ten, as after they leave the tower, they journey by boat to Lotus Island in order to gain the secret of immortality from nine immortal masters who live on a holy mountain. Once they're on the island, they're sidetracked by the Pantheon Bar, a cemetery party where people have abandoned their quest for the Holy Mountain and instead engage in drugs, poetry, or acts of physical prowess. Leaving the bar behind, they ascend the mountain. Each has a personal symbolic vision, which I just uh, referenced a little while ago, representing his or her worst fears and obsessions. Near the top, the thief is sent back to his people, along with the young prostitute and the ape who have followed from the city to the mountain. The rest confront the cloaked immortals who are shown to be only faceless dummies. The alchemist then breaks the fourth wall with the command, zoom back camera and reveals the film apparatuses just outside the frame and he instructs everyone including the audience of the film to leave the holy mountain and that real life awaits us uh, i know that you have referenced before liam that you find the ending of this film to be very emotional and i can see why uh it's interesting to come at it from the perspective of you know 40 however many years 46 years 47 years on from this film where Endings like this have not necessarily been replicated, but certainly the artifice of films being wiped away at the very end is not something that would be completely original, but that at the time in 1973, this must have been kind of, I mean, really a revolutionary act to to end a film in this manner. And apparently wasn't even originally supposed to be how the film was supposed to end, that they were going to attach themselves to balloons and float into the sky or something along those lines, and that it was kind of made up at the location. Kind of amazing to think about because as uh, you said, Julia, might be, if not, uh, might be one of the greatest, if not the greatest ending of a film ever. Uh, let's actually, since uh, since you do have such an emotional connection with Liam, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on the Holy Mountains ending? Oh, it. So you know, one of the ways that uh, both uh, Yodorowsky and Brontis describe both El Topo and uh, Holy Mountain is that El Topo is about. A spiritual journey it's about a search it's about the messiness and the conflict and the violence of that search for enlightenment and then holy mountain is a means it's a way it's a, it's a thought about what enlightenment might look like and i agree with julia like uh Yodorowsky is not a man of small ego i don't think uh and, <laughs> and we might all agree that that's justified honestly but but it is clear that he you know he takes seriously his prowess in certain things and to me, the ending is an emptying. It's a thing of saying, like, I've shown you a lot and I've created a lot of opportunities and I've opened a lot of doors in this film. But in the end, there is no immortality for me to give to you. There is no thing. You're not going to finish this movie and be like, well, that's it. I'm a Buddha now. Look, everyone, I'm a Buddha. <laughs> and like, and and even hearing him on the commentary, there's a real feeling, not just in the commentary, but in some of the other special features, too, where he's like, yeah, I mean. I was not even ready then. Like I didn't know the things I know now, but I tried to share what little I did know. And and even hearing that separation now of like the you know, the man who made this movie, a pretty amazing movie he thinks, was a fool. <laughs> like the, and, and that's the reality is that over time you probably look back on yourself and think what a foolish person I was, you know, I, I, I might've been on the right path. I might've made some of the right decisions, but hopefully we've grown from there. There's just something about the way that this ending allows for that. There's a, there's a certain sort of like um, refusal to cling about the end. That's like very much like, 
I'm not going to solve this for you. I don't, there's nothing for him to defend because the movie doesn't end with him being like, and uh, there you are, spiritual enlightenment. I did it. I did it, everyone. <laughs> We've arrived. It, it, he can he can be very open about the ways that the film is glorious and, and the things that he maybe would do differently about it because the end is very much like, this is all edifice. This is just images. The, nothing you're experiencing in here is real. That doesn't mean it can't lead you somewhere. You know, It doesn't mean it can't be a tool for you. In fact, I think that was his goal. But it has to end with a letting go. The same way that, like in my mind, any spiritual guru of any t- type that doesn't end the lesson with, and I am nothing, you know that, that the goal is not to be me it is to be whatever it is that you are going to be everyone who doesn't end in that place regardless of the steps they took to get there those are charlatans those are mm-hmm. ca- that's a that's a carny that there's no mm-hmm. difference between that guy and the person trying to get your wallet at the carnival you know like and and, and don't be wrong i have a certain respect for carnies i don't want to disrespect thieves in in all ways because <laughs> sometimes being a certain kind of thief takes a lot of skill but the reality is the one of the things we should always be skeptical of is the person who doesn't end with the emptying with the letting go and this film I just think every other time I've seen anyone try to do this, not just in film, in any art form, it feels like it misses the mark. And for me, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, yeah, that's the right place to end. That's correct. We, we are. This is where it should end. And I don't know that I've felt that satisfied about many endings. Some, but but not many. There's. I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of letting go, because that's what I think is a central idea behind this third section of the film first you see them burn their money then burn the effigies of themselves but even the the entire journey is about letting go we see the thief have sort of a conflict when they're on the boat and he has to let go of the limbless man who is i guess representative of his ego to a certain extent we see characters unable to fully let themselves go and uh, end up having trouble with the journey having to cut off their own fingers you know make these massive sacrifices because they're not willing or they're they're just mentally unable to fully give themselves over and there's even a a um, a simulated death that they all go through that I guess all the, the actors were on mushrooms at the time and they were all having very legitimate, sincere, emotional responses to the point where some of them felt like they were dying at that moment and you get that captured on film. This is about letting go because that's, you know, it's a really much of a cliche, but the, this movie is really about the journey rather than the destination. The destination is just about all of what they had to go through and all of what they had to uh, to remove from themselves to reach that final bit. So it's, I mean, again, I, I feel exactly the same way as you do, Liam, about the ending. I feel like it reaches kind of a, it transcends, as I've said before, it transcends the act of, um, of watching and it feels like you're actually um, interacting with the film on emotion on an emotional level and it, uh, it's something that I think resonates a lot more now as someone who's 40 years old and maybe it did when mm-hmm. I first saw it in my 20s uh, over to you Julia your thoughts on the not just the ending of the film but this entire final section of the film uh, do you have difficulty with the adjustment from the very stylized uh, segment from the uh, second section? And uh, and how are you? I mean, you've already mentioned you love the ending. What are mm-hmm. your feelings on it overall? 
Well, you, like you said, there are these three sections, right? So they, I feel like they are all three so different. I don't mind it. I just go, okay, this yeah. is different than the first one was, and this is different than the second was, and it doesn't throw me in any way because they've all been different. And this movie, you know, all together feels like a journey, but then, of course, this last bit really feels like here's the last leg, guys. Like, here's the last push. Um, I, You know, I, I love the little cemetery party that's trying to distract you. I think that's really so great. Yes. It is. Um, and, you know, the thing about it is, you know, you get to this top thing and of course it's never, you, the holy mountain, what it could possibly be. And it's never going to be what you think it's going to be, right? It's always going to be something that's going to catch you off guard. So, you know, if it had been just him being there laughing at them and, you know, putting his fingers in his ears and wiggling at them, like how foolish you've all been, even that would have been an acceptable ending to me because like, okay, like he was just fucking with you this whole time, you know, and you weren't, you were so silly that you couldn't see it and you don't see him smile at any other point in that movie. So like right. his just face just changes and he has this bright childlike I joy on his yep. face and he really does seem enlightened. So I'm like, okay, I buy that ending. Okay. And then you got to take it this, you know, step further to not only, you know, you're going to show the artifice of we're watching this film, but also instruct the camera itself as the director sitting there to zoom back, which is pretty amazing. He's the master of this medium he's creating, even if he's not the master, you know, who knows everything. But I think that you know the thing that I love it and like what it means to me is they were searching for immortality and they found it because that's what film is. They will forever be in this film on they've reached this holy mountain and there it is. And we've, we get to watch it forever. So that to me was what gave me shivers because I go, yes, yes, it is immortality. They found it. There it is. <laughs> that's it. that's uh, really interesting. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it your way. So this is what this is for. You go, okay, it means something different to everybody. I can't imagine not liking it. I can't imagine what you would not like about it. The one thing that changed for me on this watching that hadn't occurred to me before was, uh, you know, the first time I saw the film, I was a little concerned that the way it ended might lead towards a very specific kind of, uh, a Buddhist letting go. You know, there's this sort of idea that all attachment is bad and attachment in and of itself is the source of evil. And if we're just all detached, then, you know, we, we live in a sort of perfect harmony. Um, and on this viewing, I've thought the counterpoint to that vibe that someone might get is the thief, right? That like, he's like, you, you are, you have someone who loves, you have found love. You have a love who is devoted to you. You should just leave. Just go. Like, go away. Like, you're done here. You, you've you actually reached everything you need. And there's this moment in the commentary where uh, Yorowski affirms that, 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 like, the denial of life is bad and that life itself is good. And I was like, oh, okay, that's not just me reading my own stuff into the movie. That's <laughs> That was intentional, which I didn't know until he said that on the commentary. I just figured this was just me sort of reading a text and getting my own thing. And so there's a moment where, which might be to some people a little offensive, he yells in a tone that you don't need on the commentary, uh, fuck Buddhism, which I was like, oops, what? For a guy who borrowed a lot from Buddhism, that was a surprising. But, it, you know, he wasn't rejecting the whole mindset, but sort of saying, like, if where you end is that life is bad, you've missed the point. Because right. while life is filled with all of the pain and death and gore that we see in this movie, it's it's good. Like, life is good. It is good. It is good to be alive, which is, like, not what I was expecting him to say at yeah. all. And it is yeah, kind I, of like the like a, like a bastion, never-ending story thing where, like, the whole time was like, it was just to bring you along. Like, this right. whole story yes. wasn't about yes. these characters. It was about you. Yes. 100%. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and, and just, as you were referring to, Liam, the, the idea that, that the search for enlightenment is a good search, 
but we are all flawed in that we are mortal and that we have bodies that, you know, connect us to the world. And that flaw is not a bad thing, that it's something that that makes life meaningful and it, it can give us kind of greater satisfaction in our life in things like our own personal relationships, which is, you know, I, I was a little confused the first time I saw this movie about why he sends the thief on his way with this woman and this monkey and what, what that is supposed to mean. But that's us, right? I mean, we're not supposed to uh, necessarily be one of these planets that we have to go out at, from this movie and live the rest of our lives. And what are we supposed to think? Oh, Jodorowsky has all the answers. And now he's not giving them to us. He promised us immortality and he didn't give it. It's like, well, did you really think he was going to give you the key to turn shit into gold by the end of the movie? That's not really what it's all about. It's about kind of kind of exploring yourself and exploring the world and exploring what these different spiritual beliefs kind of can, can teach you about yourself. You can see why John Lennon would have uh, responded to a lot of what Jodorowsky had to say, right? I mean, whether it be... I know Imagine is a song that has been kind of done to death, but I mean, the belief system that uh, John Lennon had, whether it be in that song, whether it be in his song God, where he says, I don't believe in magic or the Bible or tarot or Hitler or Jesus or Kennedy or anything like that, that the idea of having to kind of give up a part of yourself, if not a large part of yourself, in order to find spiritual truths is something that kind of reflect is reflected in a lot of what Jodorowsky has here. But I do think that what Lennon might miss out on a is following through on some of that, but also B the the sense of humor that Jodorowsky brings with it. I yeah. I, I my favorite. John moment Lennon in this has entire... a sense of humor. I mean, he kind of lost a little bit in the heroin days, but beforehand, he was a pretty silly guy. I, I think he certainly was finding it near the end as well. Uh, but yeah, in the, I think at the parts where actually I like his music the most, uh, his solo music, uh, it's it's when he was the most humorless. Uh, but you're right, you're absolutely right, and certainly in his Beatle days, he was known as as one of the. The, the funniest musicians that were out there. But I, I, I do want to say is my favorite moment in the movie is something you referred to, Julia, which is when they get to the top of the mountain that they find that these, uh, these, the, these nine people up there that they're thinking that they're going to have to fight are just these effigies and that one of them is Jodorowsky himself, the, uh, the alchemist, and he, he, just, he makes this ridiculous face and does the thing on the side of his head and it's just such a silly, goofy... Honestly, it's a sense of relief I feel from that, right? Because they're all like hopped up. They're all ready to do this battle. This is supposed to be this fight, but it's not, right? The fight doesn't even exist. And the fight, you know, whatever fight there was has already been overcome from all they've, they've gone through. But I do want to go back, and I know, I know it feels like we're stepping back now, to the Pantheon Bar because I just want to talk a little bit about it. It's such an amazing moment. But also, that is one thing in this movie that even the first time I watched it, I understood, which is on your path, as you are on this, this quest up this mountain, it's very easy to get sidetracked by people who are trying to sell you easy answers. And while I may not have understood that like the poet is supposed to represent or in some way be a mar uh, knock against Allen Ginsberg and the person offering drugs is supposed to be a knock against Timothy Leary, I certainly recognize that this is all about distraction. And it's such a, how amazing is it that you're, you're what, 80% of the way through the movie, you go to this Pantheon bar and it's this amazing place full of people in this completely, you know, um, barren location um and and it's just it's there's so much going on and it's so much activity and there's a lot of humor in this segment as well uh liam any thoughts on the pantheon bar segment i think you've talked a little bit about it before but yeah uh, at this I, point. I think it's great i think uh uh it, you know it bums me out a little bit the way that he uh in the commentary says the first guy is specifically meant to make fun of alan ginsburg <laughs> 
<laughs> I was like, oh, that's mean. <laughs> yeah, but, but you, you don't like Allen Ginsberg for a very good reason. I might not be a huge Ginsberg fan, but knowing that that character is inspired by a specific dude, it just makes me sad. Like, I just kind of like, oh, poor guy, you know, but is he wrong? I don't know that he's wrong. I just, you know, shame to be Allen Ginsberg, I guess. The same way that the drug guy is specifically like Timothy Leary. I think there are people who would be bummed on that. I have no love for Timothy Leary personally, but, you know, knowing it's like, oh, yeah, you, you got your own character in the film you know uh, but actually one of the moments about it that i find like really funny is the 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 guy who's sort of the the achievement in this world guy the guy who can conquer the hor- the holy mountain horizontally <laughs> i fucking I love, that, love that because it it you because as much as that's a serious silly caricature you know someone who looks at a problem and goes well i'll just go through so we're good <laughs> kind of missing the point of what the what's happening and like i just i just see that character and every time i think like yeah there are, that's a thing that's a real thing in the world <laughs> yeah i mean i love that guy too uh Julia, any thoughts from you on the Pantheon bar? I think it's just interesting that you feel like most people, you know, would say 99% of people who are on this quote unquote search for enlightenment, quest for enlightenment are not going to get there, right? They're going to give up. And so this is just all of those people who were just like, nope, you know what? Too fucking hard. Forget it. I'm just going to party and they're just going to live in this body and it's going to be fine. And I, you know, I don't, I think it's a making fun of those people and how sad that is, but it also, you know, is it now that we know that what's up there is a joke? Is there anything wrong with it, really? <laughs> Staying behind because wasn't he sending you know uh, the thief back to kind of live his life as he wanted anyway? Mm-hmm. So I mean, if these people are living the life the way that they want, are they any less enlightened really than the people up top? No, I think the the criticism might be, and I don't know that the scene makes it clear, but in the commentary he says that they're profiting from it that they're trying to like make a living from being at the foot of the mountain mm-hmm. um which which may like, actually mm-hmm. which may actually lend them a little bit of uh, of uh credential right he's not saying they're utterly illegitimate they're at the foot of the mountain that's actually better than most of the other people in the movie <laughs> yeah. uh but the idea is that they're at the foot of the mountain and instead of actually trying to get up the mountain they're finding some way to subsist but i think you're right the uh, it's also complicated because I don't know what's up the mountain, you know, like, so I don't know. It's, it's an interesting sort of like complicated thing. I, 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 I do wonder if the, the, the idea here is that maybe they're being not true to who they are. You know what I mean? Like to what extent are they aware that what they're doing isn't real, which is not clear in the film to me. I think the idea is that they think they've already reached it. They've already reached the, the top sure. of the mountain when, yeah, yeah, when yeah, they're yeah. there, right? Uh, I do want to mention just one brief moment. I don't have it in the notes here, but it's something I always think about when it comes to this movie. There's a part where they're actually climbing the mountain, and apparently this is something Jodorowsky wanted his actors to do, to actually climb the side of the mountain, which took a very, very long time. And one of the characters uh, starts to slip, and they feel like they can't make it any further. And the some of the other characters, some of the other planets that are there, they tell this character to basically hump the the, the mountain and they to they do they tell her to hump it and that's what she does and it's supposed to i guess may, mean that she's you know kind of reinforcing her connection with the environment to a certain extent it is very unusual <laughs> to see somebody humping a mountain uh especially at that part in the film which is at, you know we've moved away a little bit from some of the more surreal aspects you're on the side of this mountain but this humping uh, section liam any thoughts about the humping of the mountain <laughs> it's good for me because on this viewing there were more and more parts of it that i felt like i 
I wouldn't go so far as to say understood, but I resonated with in a way that Absolutely. I felt like I had insights on. So I'm so glad there's still moments like that where I'm like, I don't know what the fuck is happening. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, you know, w- w- you know, uh, not to harp on this scene, but the turning the excrement into gold scene. Uh, I don't find that confusing, you know, that that feels resonant. But there's yeah, a absolutely. moment where he starts to sweat silver. And I've never understand understood why that is. It's less confusing than humping the mountain, but it's still a moment where I go, I don't know what that's supposed to be. I don't know. Are those impurities coming out of him? I don't know what's supposed to be happening there. And, and I like that. I like that there are still now and will continue to be moments where I go, I'm sure there is a very specific reason this is happening. I don't know what that reason is. That's cool. Uh, and what what's interesting about that for me too that I want to mention is what the one – person character says i think is very true that sometimes we're deeply afraid of success what you're right. afraid of is not falling off the mountain what you're afraid of is getting up the mountain and right in a literal sense that's probably less true i'm sure most actual <laughs> climbers are more afraid of death but but the idea that when you are achieving something succeeding is as utterly bone shatteringly terrifying as falling off in fact, falling off might feel better in some ways. I resonate with that at a level that is upsettingly connect. Like I identify with that too much. Now, does that mean I need to fuck a mountain? I don't know actually, <laughs> because I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But but it, I like that those moments are still there in the film. Speaking to that just briefly, it's something that I mentioned on the very first episode of the podcast, which is the idea that Jodorowsky's films, just like some other films, are. Are me- they're not to me, and this is just my interpretation, not meant to be a problem that's meant to be solved, where everything is supposed to be understood entirely. And like you, right. Liam, I'm glad I don't understand all the imagery. I don't think I ever will. In fact, I know I won't fully grasp all of it. And that to me is not a frustrating feeling. That to me is an exciting feeling because it me- gives me another reason to revisit these films and go back and try to understand them on different levels. My interpretation of some of these things have evolved and changed, just like I'm sure Jodorowsky's understanding of his own movies <laughs> have, have evolved and changed, as we can hear when he talks about them. Sorry, Julia, you had uh, something to say about this? I guess I just it felt very simple to me actually is that mm-hmm. she's just becoming one with nature, right? Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. That's probably right. Uh, and mean, so it, I, I never really thought past that. I, I didn't think it would meant any more than that. Um, you know, it seemed pretty like not even like a metaphor. It's just she's literally doing it. She's literally fucking it. So they're now they're one. Um, <laughs> that's true. I guess I, I also you know of course think of this from the actress's point of view where you're hanging suspended from this yes. giant mountain. We have no help. We don't know how far she yeah. up is, but it looks pretty fucking mm-hmm. far up. It looks cold as fuck. You're wearing like this incredible mountain gear and you, it's probably the least sexy thing you can think of. Like nobody right. feels sexy right then. Cause you're That's terrified. True. You're like physically exhausted. There's so much going on that it just seems so like the least sexy thing I can think of. And that's kind of why I like it. Cause you're like, wow, it just wouldn't, you would never, that would never occur to you. Right. Cause you would never be like, I feel, I just feel like I can't do it. Maybe if I fuck it, it'll be better. Like, of course you wouldn't think of that, but your friends are like, Hey, give it a try. You're like, okay, here we go. What? Like these, you know, these actors obviously have given a thousand percent to this movie and have gone, yes. you know, further than most actors go ever in their career for one film. And you know, the performances they gave and the willingness they give to give themselves over to him completely as a director and do whatever he likes and make them do, you know, crazy stuff with their bodies and make them take drugs on camera and, you know, all this stuff that they have this faith in him as a visionary. And I think that shows on screen. And I think that they deserve a shout out for their willingness to go along with this madman. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's one of the interesting things is that we don't hear a lot from these actors. I mean, we know with El Topo, a lot of them weren't were like non-actors or people that were just found. But in this case, you know, I would love to hear more from some of the people who are actually on this set in an acting capacity and what their experience and what their life was like after compared to what it was like before. Yeah, the, the, there's you can't really overstate how much these actors have thrown themselves into it. They basically have put themselves in the hands of Jodorowsky and be like, we will do whatever you want us to do, which is, again, going back to the beginning of this conversation, it's you wonder if George Harrison would have been as willing to be um, to give so much of himself to this role, which isn't uh, which is not a criticism of George Harrison. It's just it's a lot to ask for anybody. Sure, but look what he did for the Maharishi, right? I mean, he went through a whole lifestyle change for that, and that's an that's intense level of dedication. So it's not to say it's not possible from him. Uh, it's true. just whether or not you know his ego and Jodorowsky's ego would clash because they're both yeah. pretty big. But you know, George Harrison was going through this time period where he was trying to release his ego. So I think that's why it probably interested him. He's like, oh, I can really do this through the process of making this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I. I wish I lived in that alternate universe where we could see how that would have come out. Finishing our conversation here on the Holy Mountain. I mean, there's so much. We, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of some of the, you know, the, the themes in this, the imagery in it. There's so many probably favorite moments people listening right now are wishing that we had talked about. I, I can't help but think of the giant toilet, the one that's that high up toilet and the way that that generates that, electricity. Jodorowsky talking about how he loves a toilet that his legs can dangle from. I just, I can't help but think about everything about that toilet right now. But that's just one moment in this movie full of a million amazing moments. Sticking with you, Julia, any final thoughts on Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain? Why should people care about this movie? Because it's one of the greatest films ever made. And I can say that with certainty and not a hint of question in my voice. And it's what I want from an art film, 100%. If you say, like, give me a perfect art film, I will say this is it. I will say it will make you uncomfortable. I say it will make you think about things. I say there is lots of stuff in it that I wish weren't in it, but there's a lot of stuff in it that is more incredible than I've ever seen in any other film. And if you want a film where you will come out with your mind blown, and I don't mean that in like a it's awesome kind of way, like literally mind blown, you will be thinking about this movie for the rest of your life. This is the film. This film was released 48 years ago. In that time, there's been a lot of shocking and unusual and uh, difficult movies. But I will say that time has not dulled the impact of The Holy Mountain. That when you watch it, there, if you, especially if you're watching it for the first time, there are things here that will shock you, that will surprise you, that will move you. I mean, this is a movie that hits every single emotion that you can have about a movie as we already heard there's been people who who find a lot of anger with the movie as a whole not just the ending just every part of it there's a lot of intense emotions that are connected with this movie and i think it earns it and i think that's the one of the most impressive things you can say about any movie is that it when it comes to the intense emotions that it can elicit from people that it earns them and it earns its reputation liam your final thoughts on jodorowsky's the holy mountain I mean, there's a lot to say, and I think both you and Julia covered a lot of it. The only thing I would say is um, I still hear people trot out the tired idea when it comes to movies that narrative is the thing. Does it tell a compelling story? And you know what? That is a kind of movie that I love, but The Holy Mountain is really great evidence that um, you can be really compelling without uh, prioritizing narrative. You know, the idea that like every shot should tell the story. Well, yeah, every shot in this movie matters, 
but it's not about the story in and of itself. It's about the ways that you are being drawn along and about the ways that you're being compelled emotionally and spiritually. Uh, and, it, you know, there's no gripping dialogue. There are multiple moments that are just Jodorowsky talking. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just, uh, I really love uh, the idea that there are still a lot of folks who haven't experienced this film and a, and a bunch of other movies as well, but this one specifically, who... Um, still think that they can't be moved emotionally by a film unless they're really caught up in the narrative. I think mm -hmm. that is not what makes us fall in love with this movie, per se. I think there's some other magic going on, which for me is a reminder about film itself. That film is not just a good script. That film is the images and the sounds uh, and the editing and all of that stuff, which is, for me... A kind of alchemy because it is both science and magic and uh and i refuse to accept it as anything else so uh yeah this this movie is alchemical to me and and everything i care about is probably a little bit alchemical so there you go one of the other miracles about us talking about the holy mountain is the fact that we were able to see it at all i mean the fact right. is this movie was unavailable for people to see for 30 years when i first heard about jodorowsky and his films I couldn't see them. It was in the 90s, and they just weren't available in anything aside from bootlegs that just were not available to me. And the reason for that is that after the creation of this movie, uh, Alan Klein, the uh, the producer of it, the one who helped funnel the money from John Lennon for the making of The Holy Mountain, wanted Jodorowsky to make an adaptation of the story of O. And apparently Jodorowsky had gone through a transition at that time uh, to believing or feeling that he was a feminist and that he did not want to be part of the adaptation of that film. And because of the disagreement, and also the fact that Jodorowsky was given a lot of money that he absconded with, ah. uh, that's part of the story that sometimes he doesn't bring up, but that there, 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 uh, there was a lot of money that exchanged hands that he did not pay back, and that he went right into trying to create his adaptation of Dune, that th that created a disagreement that, that basically put El Topo and Fando and Liz and this film into a vault for 30 years and so there was a very long period where no one could see these films and thankfully uh they they the alan klein and jodorowsky before alan klein's death they reunited they uh they made up and uh actually one of the really nice things about the commentary and i know we refer to it a lot but it's a very worthwhile commentary for the holy mountain is how it ends which is the idea that there's almost like no greater thing in life than to you know to to patch things up with your enemies and that's something that he did in his life with Alan Klein, that they became friends at the end of his life. And these films are now available in beautiful restorations and on Blu-ray with all of these special features. I mean, if you want to see the the, the kind of uh, meat of the career of Jodorowsky, there's a lot of ways that you can do so. And I do highly recommend that. I imagine you already have at this point if you've listened to three hours of us talking about the whole <laughs> But yeah. Go back and revisit it. It's a movie that is worthy of rediscovering again and again and again. So let's talk a little bit. We're not done yet. We're going to talk a little bit about after the Holy Mountain. Uh, so we, uh, I think you actually referred to it already, Liam. While they were editing the film in Mexico, <laughs> uh, the Mexican government were they, they had some difficulties. Even though they liked the idea, or at least the I guess the, um, the president at the time liked uh, Jodorowsky himself and liked the idea of his films. They were trying. They were starting to lean a little heavily on him, suggesting that he can't put anything involving uniforms in his film. That there was some suggestion that people were, you know, uh, upset about the religious content and sort of the political content of it. And, people who uh, saw him filming the opening scenes claimed he was performing a black mass. Yeah, a black mass. <laughs> that's right. 
So there was a lot of controversy around it. So Jodorowsky left Mexico, went to New York City to a place that uh, provided by Alan Klein and uh, finished the editing in New York instead. Uh, during the uh, completion of it, Jodorowsky received spiritual training from Oscar Ichazo, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, we mentioned him taking LSD. He also went through an isolation tank experiment uh, conducted by John Lilly in uh, 1973. So, I mean, he was still expanding his mind and his expanding his spirituality even during the, the kind of post-production of the film. But what I want to go into before we finish up today is the long-lasting influence of the Holy Mountain. Now, we can't cover everything. There's just so much material. But the fact is, uh, whether it be visual references, audio references, uh, uh, you know, people taking some of the imagery and putting it into their own films, there's been a lot of it that, uh, that we've seen, certainly in recent years. And uh, one of the, the mediums that you see most, uh, the Holy Mountain most referenced, is in music videos. Where have you seen imagery or references to the Holy Mountain pop up in your own life? Starting with you, Liam, where have you seen references to the Holy Mountain? Um, the, you know, the most obvious one that we could spend a little bit of time with was, uh, getting to see the tour of Doggy Woggies, Poochies, Woochies, which yes. I went into completely blind. I had no can you, idea. Can you, sorry, Liam, can you explain what that is? Sure. So, uh, everything is terrible, which people may or may not know, but is a, uh, I guess VHS collective where they tend to release some interesting tidbits from VHS history, uh, yeah. often silly things. Uh, they started doing various uh, long-form edits where they would edit together all kinds of crazy stuff they had around a theme. Mm -hmm. And Doggies Woggies Poochies Woochies kind of recreates aspects of the Holy Mountain using just dog-related material of every kind <laughs> that they could find. And, I have uh, been on the Everything is Terrible bandwagon for a long time now, yes. and I have known that they're geniuses for a really long time because I, the, the, the amount of patience it takes to make these films, I can't even imagine going through hundreds of hours of terrible VHS footage to find this two-second clip you need <laughs> for this. But if anybody, if you, you know, if you would ever say, can you make a remake of the holy mountain using found footage from dogs i would have said no with no question about that but man do they do it and you know i watched these back to back because i've seen dougie waggies poochie witches a bunch but like i watched it back to back this time and i was like yeah there it is man it's just really a holy mountain remake it's really clear <laughs> and it's so great it is unbelievable it's it's unbelievable and it's i will say watching it in a theater it, yes it, with a crowd and i i don't mm. remember but i think they had uh, people in dog costumes performing too before the movie started. <laughs> yeah, they had. Yeah, they had their whole. They have their whole like uh, big fur suit thing that yeah, they do as yeah. well. I am wearing today just to shout them out. My everything is terrible shirt today, uh, where it says every if everything is terrible, then nothing is. So there we are. <laughs> so, anyways, that's that was one of the first things that occurs to me is their use of it. Um, I also have noticed it in uh, a few different bands' videos, and uh, one that sticks out to me is Eric Andre did a segment of his show completely in an, uh, the white alchemist outfit uh, mm -hmm. just interviewing people um, those are the most obvious to me uh, as well as oh there's also an Erica Badu video where she borrows uh, liberally from the images from the Holy Mountain uh, quite notably, Beyonce has referenced uh, the Holy Mountain in a number of her videos, um, in including uh, her video "My Power." Apparently, she specifically, because she co-directed that video, uh, has it 
suggested the use of imagery from the Holy Mountain and uh, and formation from her famous uh, uh, lemonade video has her in a, a costume that I think is very reminiscent of the alchemist costume from the beginning of the. Film. I would like to watch the Holy Mountain with Beyonce. That would be cool. Yeah, that no kidding, fun. right? Right. <laughs> the uh, MGMT Time to Pretend video has sequences that uh, that take imagery directly from the Holy Mountain. Uh, Santa Gold's uh, video for Les Artistes has a sequence that uh, basically takes this uh, the section from the film where people are being violently attacked and all the blood and gore are uh, different items that are being removed from their body in a very kind of colorful and visual way. Uh, the imagery of... Um, I always remember is the person bleeding from the side of their head where it's just kind of squirting out of these pipes that are attached to the side of their head. That's that's re- replicated uh, entirely within that music video. Sean Lennon, uh, the, the son of John Lennon, had a band called Mystical Weapons, uh, which is taken from the uh, name of the arms manufacturer in the Holy Mountain. And of course, you know, he obviously has a familial connection to to John Lennon and his uh, and his ref- his uh, impact on the Holy Mountain's creation. Um, how about you, uh, Julia? Anything in your own life that you've seen referenced uh, or is referencing the Holy Mountain? I mean, you pretty much covered it. I just think it's, you know, it, does Jodorowsky get credit for this? Like, can you just rip off somebody's whole like movie and aesthetic for right. your own thing? And is that okay? Like, is it an homage or is it just uh, stealing? Yeah, I mean, mm. it, it is the... It's the ultimate question. I guess when it comes to music videos, it, there is a history of that, right? So many different yeah. music videos. Well, like, that's why like, everything is terrible is great, right? They're, they're taking the Holy Mount, but they're making right. it their own thing, and it's right. okay. But like, if you're just using the same shots, and the people who you know are watching this MGMT video, like they don't know it's a Holy Mountain thing. They just sure. it's like, oh, it's them. You know? so it's, it's, but you know, if, it, if it's one of those things where it will bring those viewers back to watch the Holy Mountain, it's cool. But yeah. does that yeah. happen? Yeah. Yeah, unless you read an article about it or you listen to a podcast about it to know yeah. that that's what it's supposed to be referencing. No, it's a really good point. Or, or maybe you were in the crowd when Kanye West tried to shame uh, wh- how many thousand people paid to see him because they didn't know what the Holy Mountain was, which is <laughs> one of the more awkward endorsements, I think, of the film. It's one of the things that we have to kind of tangle with a little bit as well, that both Kanye West and Marilyn Manson had kind of uh, close relationships with Jodorowsky and have been greatly influenced by their work. Not to say that uh, Kanye and, and Marilyn Manson have uh, their their whatever trouble or difficulties you have with them as people are equal, but uh, Kanye certainly has been very open about his uh, relationship with Jodorowsky, both as an influence on his tour, his uh, his Yeezus tour from years back, but also I believe that uh, Jodorowsky uh, actually read tarot for him, and there's some pictures of them together. And Marilyn Manson was going to work on a film with Jodorowsky at one point, and that actually looked like it was pretty close to coming together. That actually film was meant to be originally produced by David Lynch. Can you imagine as metaphysical spaghetti western is what it was described as? Wow. Uh, so I mean, there's. There's, uh, it's called King Shot. Well, actually, I think that in one of our future episodes, we'll talk about uh, all of the unproduced right. yes. uh, Jodorowsky films. That's something we should explore maybe on our next episode, in fact, because we're talking about the most famous of all, almost but not there, <laughs> not created <laughs> Jodorowsky movies. It's Jodorowsky's Dune. Now, uh, this is rather timely. I mean, we're in the year 2021. In a few months, a new adaptation of Dune is about to come out. I don't know a lot about the original material, the actual book Dune. It's not something I've read before, but I certainly have seen the Jodorowsky's Dune documentary. I know a lot about the making of it. It's something that I find so fascinating. And one of the greatest things about that documentary is the way it kind of reignited people's interest 
in Jodorowsky as a filmmaker. I mean, I felt like it, it, people were talking about it, certainly in our circles, most likely, and people were talking about some of his older films, but the idea of him as a continuing creative force is not something that I was really aware of until that movie came out. And then suddenly, you know, within a few years, we had so, a lot of new Jodorowsky content. It just seemed like it raised his profile in a really positive way. Um, and, and that's something, just a part of what we're going to talk about. On the next episode of Jodorowsky, we're going to be talking about Jodorowsky's Dune. Very excited about that. How about you, Julia? Any thoughts on Jodorowsky's Dune before we finish up here today? Oh, yeah. It's bitchin'. I can't wait to talk about it. I mean, I I love Jodorowsky. I love almost but not quite movies, like those kind of, you know, alternate reality kind of stuff, as we said, of like, we almost had this, but we didn't quite. Yeah. I love it. So I'm so excited to talk about it. And this is, you know, such a great example of how engaging and how long lasting a documentary's influence can be. Like you said, like if it can restart somebody's career, that's pretty powerful. I remember watching Jodorowsky's Dune at the Toronto International Film Festival. And just, I mean, I was so deeply engaged with it. I think I had always been aware of Jodorowsky because I'd seen some of his films, but him as a person and as a personality is not something I'd really explored very much up to that point. So it really was a revelation to me. I can say with full confidence that we would not be I would not be, I should say, doing this podcast right now if it wasn't for that documentary. And I do have to say that I know people have strong feelings, positive and negative, towards that documentary. And I think some of the negative feelings are around the idea that, oh, this movie wouldn't have been any good anyway, or this is, you know, it's not worth exploring a film that wasn't made to this extent. All I can say to those people is, because we're going to talk a lot about Jodorowsky's Dune on the next episode of this. Liam, any thoughts on Jodorowsky's Dune before we finish up here? Uh, Frank Pavlich is one of my favorite uh, guests on Cinepunks I've ever had. It's a complicated documentary because Jodorowsky's complicated, but it's such a testament to creativity and to his commitment and to the idea that sometimes you reach for something and, and you just can't get there, that I just, I'm entranced with it. Uh, in retrospect, could have a few more women in it. I wish there were a few more female voices in the film. But otherwise, I love it. I think it's a, a great movie. On the next episode of Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky's Dune. Folks, we've got to the bottom of the mountain after climbing it. I feel really excited about people getting to check out what we had to say here. If people want to check out more of what you have to say, Julia, what's the best way for them to do so? I've heard there's some exciting news about your film project. Uh, yes. So I am on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. I am Julia C. Marquesi. And I am, yes, in the process still of making my Stephen King dollar baby for I Know What You Need. Uh, we are filming uh, summer of 2021 in Maine. And I just announced my cast and I'm very happy with them all. And it's weird to be bringing the characters from the story that I read into life in the way that I see them. I mean, it's so exciting. I know that we've been talking a little bit about it throughout our episodes and even in the episode of uh, our Dick Miller themed podcast over at Cinema Smorgasbord. I just love that if with every little piece that we are getting together, we can see more evolution of that idea. And I can't wait to see it realized. Uh, Liam O'Donnell, I know that you are doing a lot of creative things as well. Where can people find them online? Well, they can, of course, find this podcast as well as uh, a number of podcasts, some of which I'm on, some of which I'm not, over at Cinepunks.com, as well as some writing. I'm working on a new column that I'm hoping will launch very soon, uh, and we have some ideas. Uh, Cinepunks also has a YouTube channel, which is mostly dormant at the moment, but uh, we have some video ideas, and uh, a friend of mine is working on a video series that we're hoping will launch midsummer. so keep an eye on that space, and of course, we'll remind you on episodes of this show as well. Uh, if people want to dive into the archive for this show, they can head on over to Cinema Smorgasbord. 
dot com uh where we have not only uh jodowowski but also uh how do you do fellow kids uh a podcast about steve buscemi uh an exploration of genre film and our show focused on carol kane um if people want to keep up with us on social media, then of course follow Cinepunks on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And they can find Cinema Smorgasbord at Cinema Smorg, S M O R G, on Twitter. You can, of course, also follow Liam directly on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I would love for you to follow me on Twitter. I'm there at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you like what you're hearing or want to check out any of our other podcasts, we'd also appreciate you giving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe. Tell your friends. uh, Let them know that there's a Jodorowsky podcast out there that they should be listening to. But for now... Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to say goodnight. We're going to be back very soon with an episode on Jodorowsky's Dune. Good night, everybody. Night-night.